Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Ray Allen Canine, it's no secret that we love Ray Allen Canine equipment. We use their products every single day at both Van Ness Canine and at Torchlight. Their mission statement says it all, to be the world leader in quality innovation for professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen, and ring sport tend to exceed their customers' expectations and deliver on time every time at a fair price. We full-heartedly believe that they've held true to that since it is our go-to one-stop shop for everything canine, not just police dogs, but for any working dog. This episode is also brought to you by our good friends over at Dogtra, dogtra.com. It's the e-collars that Ted and I use. It's the e-collars most police dog guys use. Dogtra.com, e-collars, bark collars, ball launchers, one-stop shop for everything you need for your working dog, dogtra.com. One of the other sponsors we're proud to have is Hits Canine Training Conference. It's the premier Amer- it's the premier canine training seminar in the United States. Packed to the room with the world's best instructors covering important topics from admins to liability to detection work, all and tracking and everything in between. There's no better place to learn and no better place to network with other handlers, breeders, and trainers. Hits 2022 is being held in Orlando in August. Uh, so hit them up, hitscanine.net. We're super happy to be uh, represented by our good friends at Kinetic Dog Food. Uh, we've got great reviews from people all over the place. Uh, ever since we, we joined up with them and partnered with them, their uh, commitment to your dog's nutrition is top-notch. KineticDogFood.com. Check them out. Jim over at NC Canine out in North Carolina. It's the culmination of 13 years of experience in handling or training uh, law enforcement canines. They use real-world deployments to develop their training program and rely not only on their experience, but the current experience of the nation's canine handlers provide the best canine partner you can get. They provide pet training and police canine training based out of Four Oaks, North Carolina, and they serve the surrounding areas as well as nationally. Feel free to call them and learn more about their dog training program, police canine techniques and methodologies. We got a brand new sponsor, man, American Aluminum Accessories. Uh, my entire time in canine and ever since I've been involved in the dogs, the kennel in the back of our cruisers has always been American Aluminum. Uh, check them out. Uh, we're so happy to have them on here. EasyRiderOnline.com. EasyRiderOnline.com for everything you need from American Aluminum accessories. Speaking of kennels, once you get out of the car, you got to have somewhere to put them. So our friends up in Ohio at Horizon Structures make a one-stop shop for kennel. If you want a two-dog kennel or if you want a 20-dog kennel, they got you covered. They get those things built and they drop it off at your house. All you got to have is a pad, electricity, and water, and you can put dogs in it that day. Horizon Structures can build you anything from mild to wild, and it is the one-stop shop, and you don't have to swing a single hammer. So hit them up, horizonstructures.com. All right, everybody, Working Dog Radio, we are back broadcasting the bite in another fantastic episode coming to you from uh, Canton, Ohio. I am Eric Stambro with me always from Tulsa, Oklahoma is our co-host, Ted Summers. Ted, what is going on, buddy? Oh, not a lot. Worky, worky. Uh, you know, more of the same. We're getting ready to, uh, we adopted a nine-month-old, what are you doing? I got my dog came in here. We adopted a nine-month-old lab. We got from uh, Lab Rescue, and this thing is just like apparently is psycho. So I'm super excited about it. The last one I got from them, uh, one of our buddies up in upstate New York, uh, Ken and Ed from Dark Horse, mm-hmm. uh, up at the Albany County Sheriff's Office. Uh, that dog's name, Cruz. The Cruz, yeah. And that dog was a was psycho. Uh, nice. He was the lab that will bite you. 
<laughs> if you had, I, a test I had one of those yeah. too. It was awesome. Yeah. God dang, and he was a machine. Like he'll find fucking drugs. I can understand why they like. I mean, I understand why the family that had him was like. I they probably got him as like a pet. They're like, oh, and the husband was like, oh, I'm gonna use it for hunting too, and he did. <laughs> so he's uh, yeah, he's finding drugs in upstate New York. So this one, same thing. And then we're still working the puppies. Got pets. Uh, we have a bunch of pit bulls right now. There. How's the build out of the kennel going? Uh, they got the air conditioner installed. The area, the uh, the ductwork guy or whatever they call him is coming, and they're gonna put all that shit in. And then after that, they're gonna start all the drywall. Just in time for cold weather. Yeah. Well, they got the heater installed. I'm not really concerned about that. I told him I was like, as long as it keep it like 60 degrees in the summertime or in the winter time, I'll be fine. I don't need it to be any hotter than that. But yeah, when it's a in 110 with the heat index, I'm like, it's a little rough. Like, yeah, they're tough. like, you can put a fan in there. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's like, put a fan in a sauna. It still fucking sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, it's still terrible. So you mentioned having pit bulls, um, a bunch. It's weird. It's so weird on the pet side how cyclical it is. We'll go where every single one of my trainers has German shepherds, and then everybody has doodles, and then we also have six pit bulls i think in the group right now in the training groups a uh, couple just went home uh it's crazy how that works man it's just really strange i'm like yeah we haven't had a shepherd for a month and they're like shut your mouth and here comes 10 of them um it's just really it's just really weird how that works out yeah i'll do for uh, a doodle run i think i got two shepherds right now that um one of them i think is uh, mattis son um so his name's taz mm, they uh, told me is he nuts um, he was a little sharp mm-hmm. <laughs> defensively. He, he tried to smoke me the first couple of days we had him. And, uh, in my interns, Paul and Jacob, he went after both of those guys. I'm like, well, so I took him out today and I was like, all right, buddy, like today's the day. And he, uh, he didn't do anything stupid. Um, I taught him to wear a muzzle. So I had a muzzle on him for, I don't know, the first 15 or 20 minutes until I decided he wasn't going to act like a weirdo. I think he's great. I, I mean, he was like, I didn't let anybody touch him or anything, but I mean, he's, you know, outside of that, he was, you know, I mean, fantastic. So, um, yeah. I mean, what do you got going on? Um, I got a handler came in today. Well, yesterday he started, uh, sold a dog that we had, um, Vinny. Oh, Vinny, I people, saw the people saw, yeah. you know, Vinny was pretty much dumb, done. Somerville, South Carolina came up and got him. Uh, I, I have another dog on that department. Um, he's coming up for a, he's an experienced handler. So he's kind of helping us finish and getting it, nap water ish ready. He's that's what they got to certify in October, I think. But we started him on recall today on the slick floors at the old school and he's, he's piece of cake. Um, dog's ready to go. So we just got to get this guy used to handling cause he had a shepherd for a long time. Oh. I get him used to handling him out. It's just a little bit different. Benny is so, not a shepherd. <laughs> no, no, no. I've Show seen... him a couple of cool things and he's a good kid, man. He's trying, he's, you know, the thing is he's the only one, right? We, I have a bomb dog that I'm training for our buddy, Scott. That's, we just do detection with him and some tracking. Right. So I can't train this kid and his dog all day. Right. So we're done at like one o'clock. Yesterday was two. So, um, told him, I said, you, where your, uh, where your, hotel is there's a lot going on like around there for food and alcohol just enjoy yourself and chill out and enjoy the trip so he'll be up here for a couple weeks and he's going to go back and finish up at his place so other than that the usual um i have let's let's talk real quick before we bring our guest on real quick about two dogs that you and i have 
one uh, pet dogs, one that I posted about several times, and then you followed up with that today. Um, oh, yeah, with yeah, your dog. So, one of the things that uh, in this pet dog stuff is a lot of the money is in dealing with behavior cases, reactive, yep. high anxiety. anxiety cases this year one is actually aggressive so the dog look um and people are like oh he just bites out of fear but he bites so that you can't discount that it might be a bite and let go but he still bites and he's fast at it um he's actually truly dog aggressive i think i think he actually would kill a dog if he could so that part there is a man definite management situation. I don't believe you can cure dog aggressive dogs of being dog aggressive. Um, but I've had him on place with other dogs walking by. I just don't let him do anything. And then on the fear reactive side. So what I did was, you know, this reactivity and everything is almost always caused by the relationship at home with the owner and the way that the dog is growing up. They don't make the dog mean, uh, people are like, Oh, they, they're, they're just shitty owners. No, they just don't know, right? Too much freedom of movement, too much free time, not enough rules, not enough structure, no leadership, too much unearned affection, all, all that stuff. Typically, I find those dogs to be kind of fat because of yeah. over, you know, giving them treats and all that shit. Um, so after he bit me, I got him into the kennel. And then the next day I put on the bite suit and I went in the kennel with him. He backed up, backed up again against the back wall of the kennel, snarling, barking, screaming, basically, and pissed everywhere. They didn't oh. bite the suit. So I, there you go. I lassoed him with a slip lead. And what I did was I went outside for 30 minutes and just made him follow me everywhere I went. And I didn't talk to him. I'm now in charge. I'm, I'm the captain now. And uh, I just walk around and make him follow me everywhere. And I don't talk to him. And after that, man, him and I were cool. He, he had one or two more episodes of kind of peeing and being fearful, but he would stop and let me throw the leash. Now him and I are buddies like uh, totally different dog. And all it yep. was is me setting up rules, structure, leadership, and shrinking his world to a crate, long periods of crate, long, long, and a kennel, a small kennel. And, um, place and it's it's really transformed him enough that i could take him to lowe's yesterday mm -hmm. uh just walk around it's, i don't know that it's a dog that i would really encourage the owners to take until they get super familiar <laughs> with catching uh -huh. you know things before they go up uh -huh. out of control so there was a lot he was a lot of scanning there was a lot of correcting um but if you were a customer walking around you really wouldn't know i was doing it you know you really wouldn't see it that much but i put him up on on the wood piles of wood and they had them lay down. This always makes for a good picture, honestly. And, um, people walking by and a guy came up and stood next to me and talked to me. He started to shift. Like he was going to react. I corrected him, laid back down, never had a problem. But this, this is a dog that sees any human would launch at the end of the leash. Usually they have a, you know, a distance he would see and go. And then the owner would grab him. And just stop. Hey, hey, hey. And grab him. Yep. And the, you just touched him. You just said it's okay. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, use that long thing, that six foot long stringy thing you have called a leash. Use it. So tell me what are you, the dog you post about today on a follow-up, was that the, the Madison? Uh, well, yeah, but that really was, I mean, it was thought of about him, but I have another dog. We have two German shepherds, both that are kind of like that when their owners, the Madison, uh, uh, Taz wasn't like that. Um, he definitely was like kind of funky. Um, and his owners did a great job with a lot of the other stuff, but you know, he's not very old and they're, they got coveted. So mm-hmm. they couldn't take the dog out and socialize him and everything else. And he got mature and decided that he's going to be a German shepherd and try and smoke people. Right. Yeah, with a and father a, who's a police dog. He's a big boy too. He is about, a, I don't know how big he is. He's, he's big. He's one of the biggest dogs that I've had through. <laughs> and wow. uh, so, but I, I, I had him out and I could see signs of like, anxiety or stress and i'm like what the fuck is wrong with you like what's wrong with you and he would come to me and like nudge my hand i'm like get away from me Mm -hmm. like what do you want i'm not gonna pet you no i'm not gonna touch you get away from me and you know and i would put him back in a down position and any and then i started to figure out like but because he didn't do it at the kennel they didn't public so and i didn't allow him to do it at the kennel because he'll work a place command like nobody's business he'll sit there for an hour right and not move and he's Mm -hmm. like he was asleep the other day I'm like, all right. So, because uh, they do the same thing, shrink it down from a kennel, shrink it down to the place, and then um, control their food intake. Like, if you want to interact with me, especially with the dogs that are dickheads, if you interact with me, <laughs> you got it. If you want to eat, buddy, you can't eat me. So, mm-hmm. that it usually takes a couple of days, and they're like, oh, okay. Like, so, but he, he started coming to me for um, like confirmation. And the female we had, um, Shiloh, she does the same thing. And, you know, it's like, and, and what it comes down to, and their, their owners are more so Shiloh's owners than Taz's owners, but Shiloh's owners mean well, uh, they really miss her, like they're, you know, dog parent people, which is fine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that dogs are well cared for. Like, I love it. But inadvertently, what my thing was about was, you know, people inadvertently confirming or reinforcing bad behavior or, or or like mindsets and dogs where they're like, fuck, this is scary. Save me. And then the human becomes a savior and then anybody gets near it, then it becomes a resource guarding problem. Right. So they view them as the resource and then nobody can get fucking near them. And they're like, Oh, he's protective. I'm like, yeah, that's not what that is. No. <laughs> like, like, yeah, you got this all wrong because the dog is not protective over me. He didn't give a fuck about me. Like, I mean, he does because I give him stuff. Like I give him freedom and I give him food, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't give him, I mean, I'll pet him, but I'll only pet him. Like if I down him and then he does that whole Sphinx thing. And then when he rolls over on his hip, especially in public, I'll count to 20 and then I'll call him to me. I'm like, come here, buddy. And then I'll pet him. I'll reward like that. But this whole shit about like, I'm scared and start panning and they turn to you. And, well, he didn't do it. Show. And I'm like, not, we're not doing that shit. And so that's what kind of like what it was about. And I texted Taz's owners and I was like, what I, Cause she had a, the, the owner of Taz, like had a problem leaving him there. She was really upset and she didn't want to leave him. She misses him. She texted me. She's like, you know, and the longest time my husband, and I've been married. It's the first time we haven't had a dog in the house. I'm like, I know it'll be fine. So he, uh, you know, I kind of prepped her and I was like, yeah, you may have to deal with, you know, being okay with not, with not like praising him and not. And I said in my post, I was like, you know, and canine handlers is one of the things that we see all the time. Dudes that constantly just say, good boy, good boy. And I'm like, would you shut up? (laughs) Like, no, he's not being good. Like, it's a terrible bite. That's not good. No, that is not good. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. And then inevitably they do it on body cam 
And then some asshole attorney is like, oh, you're more concerned about the dog than the well-being of the suspect that they're biting. And it, does, it shows like a lack of disregard for their fucking, you know, and I'm like, well, I mean, you know, rather than what we teach our guys and you teach them the same thing, like we say, help me get you cuffed up and I'll take the dog off. Help me get you cuffed and I'll take the dog off over and over again. Or give me your hands and I'll take the dog off. Show me your hands, I'll take the dog off. And they get used to saying, because they get used to saying it all the time. I, we had one word, the dog, Hannah couldn't even see the dog. And he's like, good boy. I'm like, how the fuck do you know? Like, he can be like, well, you don't even know what he's doing. He's licking his nuts. Yeah, I'm like, shut up. Like, stop talking to him. Nobody cares what you think anyway. So, Mm -hmm. like, nobody cares. The dog sure shit doesn't care. He's not even here. So, that just kind of, like, struck a chord with me because I'm constantly saying that. And dudes are like, oh, good boy. And I look at him like, really? No, he's not good. Stop. (laughs) Like, no. Talk way less, people. Way less. Speaking of talking less, are you going to introduce our guest? Of course. Yeah, we'll get we'll go (laughs) now. (laughs) <laughs> so um we uh, we missed our guest last bef- uh, before when we did the Australian series so uh our guy reached out to him to get him on and uh we're super stoked to have him it's uh see it's Wednesday here so it's Thursday morning I think over there if I'm right Correct. and uh our guest a lot of you know him on Instagram as canine Steve canine underscore Steve uh, he's got a dog uh Gooch which is a fucking fantastic dog name I think um i would have all kinds of nicknames for that dog but um and if you go to youtube this is one of the first times i've seen him uh with a shirt on because his instagram (laughs) is you know got a lot of shirtless pics but he 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 has the look so welcome canine steve steve maherick how are you buddy i'm i'm really good thanks for that intro mate it's uh it's an absolute honor to be here you know i uh telling you earlier that when i was working i used to listen to you guys all the time you know i've been a bit disconnected now but um you know we took a lot of good or i took a lot of good information from your show and uh being in australia we're very isolated we don't get to attend all the uh conferences and everything so mm-hmm. we actually get linked up with a lot of our subject matter experts when we're facing problems through platforms like this you know that's how we find them that's how we hit them up that's how we bring them out to australia or we link up and uh, get info from them so don't underestimate the power of, of the platform you guys are doing good things so thanks for having me well thank you for coming on man it's it's good you know i learn i'm able to learn a lot from watching people on videos and reading some things they say some people struggle with that they actually have to do it you know and then you talk them through or you do it and then they follow like in person so um those who can learn from listen to a podcast which is easy ted and i talk about all the time i'll listen to like bradshaw or somebody and go oh yeah 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 i should i'm gonna give that a try um because I'm still always learning from new things from new people. Yeah. And yeah. I'll uh, tag some of my trainers in a, in a video, like say Rigney will put something up that I do. And I tell my people, but I'm not the subject matter expert in my, within my 50 mile range, 50 you know, mile rule. Yeah. Right. I'm just the idiot um, <laughs> who comes in in a grumpy mood all the time. So uh, I'm like, well then listen to him. So, <laughs> yeah. But anyways, appreciate you coming on. Um, I'd like to go at like we usually do, um, kind of talk about growing up and how you got yep. into the military. You had a different route than a lot of other folks. I did. I did. So just, I guess, a really quick recap on, on who I am and where I'm at now is, um, you know, I, I sort of, I guess, my first sort of thing, I was an athlete. I, I went off the path and I got into the criminal world down in Melbourne. Um, I found redemption in the military. Uh, you know, I made special forces, got a green beret, became a commando. I deployed a few times as a uh, salter and then I uh, specialized as an attack dog handler, which is where I met Googe. Uh, we were teamed together, worked together for 
two and a bit years before he was injured, uh, retired into my care, came home with me. And then uh, I retired shortly after that. And um, I guess where I'm at now is, uh, you know, I've got Googe just living a uh, life of producing wholesome content on social media. And um, I'm enjoying doing that. You know, I like to uh, represent a positive side of uh, the special forces, something that people don't see. And, um, you know, underneath that sort of relationship, I'm promoting a healthy lifestyle, a healthy mindset, um, accountability and um, responsible pet ownership as well and um, that's where I'm at now is I've just started training pet dogs and I'm working with a friend who owns Master of Puppies here on the Gold Coast, Will. Um, he's setting up a training facility slash daycare slash uh, kenneling facility and uh, we're working on opening that getting that all sorted out so nice. here we are. Yeah uh, we are. you know doing the we Ted and I talk about it all the time doing the um, and both of us what i want to say resisted the pet stuff for a long time but yeah, um i still do right <laughs> he just does 12 at a time but he's resisting it <laughs> but <laughs> but it's um it did make me a better trainer you yeah, know yeah, overall yeah. especially i was a good i thought i well i think i was a pretty decent e-collar trainer um but getting using it on pet dogs and things is maybe even better a little bit more finesse yeah. you know yeah yeah. And I learned from a lot from a lot of other folks on it. But uh, yeah. so growing up, um, yep. I don't want to really get into the specifics of the, the criminal stuff you did. But no, no we won't. Oh, but I'll, I'll go through some of it just to give people a, a timeline, I guess. And also it defines my motivations to join the army and what sort of triggered all that. Right. So I guess I'll, I'll have to preface it because otherwise my mum will kill me and let you guys <laughs> know that I do have really, really good parents, you know, just middle class, hardworking. Dad was a Yugoslavian immigrant. Um Mum was from Dutch background. Uh, he was a plumber. Mum was a nurse. Um, they, they looked after us, gave me really, really good values. So what I chose to do with my life is definitely not a reflection of their parenting. Um, but so starting, I guess I grew up down in Melbourne, which is uh, Melbourne and Sydney here are our two biggest cities. Um, I was a, I guess, a gifted endurance athlete sort of growing up. Um, and that progressed into doing triathlons in my sort of mid to late teens. And I had a somewhat successful career at that getting sponsorship and I guess, defining myself as a, an elite athlete. Um, but sort of coming up to the end of school, you know, I finished school in uh, 2001 and I was very much burning out as an athlete. Um, and that was something that I thought I was going to continue on forever. But as most people that put that effort in, in those sort of years, you know, just you put other things on, 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 you know, in the background and you're not living your life and you tend to burn out. So that was me. I left school. I left home at 18 as well. I uh, went out on my own without much direction uh, with much sort of idea of what I wanted to do. Um, and I'm definitely on a path of trying to prove my worth as a man, um, sort of mm. foolishly, you know, that, that immature masculine mindset that getting into fights and doing all that sort of stuff. And I, um, I gravitated towards the party scene in Melbourne. Um, now it was specifically the, the rave scene in Melbourne, which is the electronic sort of music scene, mm. which was huge, huge back then. And, and that was a world that was full of, uh, I guess, social misfits and people that didn't know their place and sort of gravitated towards that world. And underneath that, or on top of that was a, a quite a large criminal element. And, um, you know, I wasn't much into the music and dancing, but I was, I was very much into making friends and networking. Girls. <coughs> Girls. Yeah. <laughs> <That too. laughs> Rave and, chicks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that. A lot of that. <laughs> um, so 
I, I found myself sort of gravitating uh, towards a sort of criminal element there. And, um, you know, I, I was doing my thing within that world and um, I got noticed by somebody within that sort of element there who was uh, quite connected and uh, quite feared there. And uh, he, he noticed me and he, uh, I didn't know, he tested me a bunch of times and um, I passed those tests and uh, he sort of gave me the keys into a world which I really had no business being in. Um, you know, there's, in Australia, there's sort of, I say there's three passports into that sort of world, that sort of echelon of criminal activity. And it's, it's uh, family-based, you know, there's a lot of sort of ethnic-based uh, groups, especially down in Melbourne, but, but most of Australia. Um, it's uh, the areas people grew up in. Um, you know, and I just grew up in a normally, I didn't grow up in one of the rougher areas in Melbourne. And um, the other thing is jail time. A lot of the connections are made through guys going to jail, proving themselves in jail and doing all that. So I didn't have any of that. I, I got my way in just being, I guess, who I am, being dependable, having a good reputation, being someone that wasn't a pushover, that sort of thing. And um, yeah, I very much was a tourist in that world hmm. and um, things really escalated for me in that world quite quickly um you know it wasn't long sort of where it was just sort of all fun and games to things where we were quite violent quite dangerous um the people that i was hanging around with were were people that had serious pasts and they were people that had serious family and all that sort of stuff um and i somehow managed to keep my head above water with these people and it, it taught me a lot about i guess human nature and and dealing with people there was a lot of challenges within that space a lot of times where I had to really stand up for myself when I was you know very very scared very scared mm -hmm. of my safety I guess um so we're in that world things escalated um that bloke that brought me in me and him basically became best friends I guess and got to a point where uh he and I moved in together now he was on parole for a, a previous he did he'd been in jail just before he met me um he got busted with some money um, a few weeks before this particular incident. And it was not long after I moved in, but we had a, uh, a task force hit our house and um, they could not give two shits that I was there. I was there with my partner at the time who I'd then, then go on to marry and unfortunately divorce. But um, mm -hmm. we were both there when they came through and um, they were just after him. All they wanted was him and they found enough within his space to, to take him back to jail. And that's what they did. Um, very fortunate situation for me, just that point there. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here if things went the other way. Um, but he went to jail. Uh, he got locked up for, I think he was doing a three-year sentence at the time. And he was a bloke that uh, he was running everything that he was doing based on fear and uh, didn't have much respect underneath that fear. So he went to jail. Everyone abandoned him. Everyone that owed him money, all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. Cool. Uh, as, as what happens, um, you know, jail is a very, very grim place. You know, it's nothing to be, uh, to romanticize or anything like that. These guys, they get abandoned, you know, and it's, it's survival of the fittest in there as well. Um, but so he was put in, um, I supported him like a best friend. You know, I, as I said, people get abandoned in jail, family abandons everything. I was visiting him as, as much as I could taking phone calls, 
dealing with all the idiots that he met. He wanted me to go meet up with when they come out and all that sort of rubbish, you know, go on putting bets on for, for him at the, at the, uh, uh, the TAB, mm-hmm. our horse racing thing. Like a lot of them are gamblers. They get big gambling addictions in mm-hmm. there. Um, so yeah, this, while he was in, I guess I sort of got more of a name for myself within that sort of world. And um, I guess it sort of got out of my control in a sense, you know, I did think I was in control at the time, but, you know, looking back, it was very out of my control and I was just lucky in a lot of sense. And um, he, uh, well, during the visits, I was probably feeding him a bit too much information and he developed some resent for me, especially since uh, he had nothing sort of to come out to. And I think he was very aware of that. So not long before sort of he got released and things happened to me where some people that, I met through him, which were very much more loyal to him than they were with me. They sort of set me up, not in a guns in your face sort of thing, but just taking advantage of my trust and that sort of thing. And it was Mm -hmm. too aligned with him being released. And I was very suspicious of what was happening. He got released and we moved into a house together and, um, you know, my suspicions were correct. And I was out one day and he, he, he took some things off me or took some money off me when I was out, um, which, you know, it broke my heart at the time because this was a bloke I looked after like he was my brother. You know, I, I did a lot for him when he was in prison. Um, the mistake I made, I was probably just telling him a bit too much, I think, you know, and, and thinking that he had that same level of respect for me. Um, it's a very cruel environment, which is what I sort of learned. You know, you, you can play by the rules and you can play by the code, but these people don't give a shit, especially if you're a tourist like me. I was very aware that I got the sense that if something was going to happen, I was the one being thrown under the bus. So I decided at that point to exit from that environment. Um, I left those people without sort of telling them and and pushed to a different area of Melbourne. Um, I was still involved with what I was doing, um, but I distanced myself from all those people that I considered, I guess, really hardcore career criminals within that scene that were too high vis were too high risk um were crazy you know i saw and witnessed them do some some wild things over very very little um you know i think the difference between me and those guys is is i think when they're raised in such a harsh environment without support and without love there tends to be this part of their brain that doesn't evaluate risk in the same way and they emotionally sort of fly off the handle or they think that pride has has more to do with with than logic in a situation and they tend to react very, very badly, which is why a lot of these guys are in and out of jail all the time. Um, but I distanced myself from them. Um, I, uh, at that point, they or someone from, from that sort of group contacted me and uh, let them know that they were treating me like a snitch. Um, so basically saying that leaving is the same as, as snitching. And um, in Australia, the worst thing, it's funny for this show, but the worst thing you can be called is a dog which I never understood because mm-hmm. I absolutely love dogs, right. but that's what they were calling me. And um, to me, that's, that's a very, very serious threat then. And, and I had to prepare and uh, sort of act accordingly and get ready for that. I was living with my partner at the time and we sort of slept separated that we weren't living in the same house and that sort of stuff. Cause one of the guys that did message me, you know, he was a, he was a murderer uh, and you know, I mean, a convicted murderer. He, he got done for a heinous crime Um and, um, you know, at the time it was when I first met him, it was sold to me in, in sort of a uh, dispute amongst criminals, but it wasn't that whatsoever. It was a, a really bad robbery that he did. And he went very high level with that. And, um, but when he messaged me, I was like, shit, you know, this is serious. 
this is serious. So I, I prepared myself and I did what I needed to do to, to make myself feel safe. Um, within the sort of the years that followed, it sort of went quiet. Sometimes something would pop up where a threat would come through. But for the most part, I sort of just started to take it as, as sort of empty threats that they were just going and doing their own thing and I was doing my own thing. But within that time, I sort of really started to uh, question my own morals and values. Um, you know, as I sort of started this with, I wasn't raised like that. I was given opportunities. I was given an education. Um, this initially was a greed thing, and then it was very much ego. Um, I know it's, it's, it's been said by a lot of people in that world. It's not the money and stuff that keeps people in there. It's that big fish, small pond mentality of just... Mm -hmm having people suck up to you, make you feel like you're somebody, you're fucking nobody, but they make you feel, and it is addictive. It is a drug, you know? And um, I started to question what I was doing with my life, um, what I was doing for my partner at the time, which I wanted to marry. Um, you know, my family had become aware of this sort of stuff. You know, my mum, I guess the big point for her was I got caught up in something during a jail visit and um, I was banned from all jails in Australia. And that letter went to my mum's house. So um, Lord. yeah, oh. yeah. She, she let just sort of, that was the sort of tipping point for her to say, what are you doing? You know? And um, obviously rumors and stuff started to filter through. Um, and on that, you know, I had nothing to do with what happened. It was just an extremely bad situation and uh eventually i beat the uh corrections department to have my ban lifted and obviously next time i visited jail there was a massive welcoming party for me uh, uh, as there should be but um I had, yeah it was, it was a shit situation and and uh anyway i um i was looking sort of at myself i, I was questioning what i was doing I, I really wasn't proud of the man that i'd become and i knew i could do better i knew um I, I had it in me to be a, a more valuable member of society. So I started looking for a way out of it before it was too late. Um, and it was very close to getting to that point of it being too late. There was a couple of violent incidences during that period where it really could have gone either way. You know, one of them was, was stopped by me taking a hit to my pride and thinking I had to prove something to someone. And I was prepared to bring a, level of violence would have got me in, put in jail for a while and, and he knocked me out before I could start it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I lost that one, but it was a blessing. He, he did me a favour. Um, and uh, so I started looking at my options. You know, I, um, I needed something that was going to take me away from that world completely. You know, I, I couldn't just go, cool, I'm going to, you know, get a job here, blah, blah. And through that period, I was doing odd labor jobs and stuff like that. But I was like, I couldn't just, you know, go work at McDonald's or whatever it be, because the temptations I think would be too strong for me. I, I was, I was honest with myself and knew that I, I really, I had to leave the state and um, I, I never had any inkling to, join the military i was i mean i was always fascinated i grew up on uh action movies and all that sort of stuff and i, and I was very you know fascinated by that world but it was never sort of uh something i thought about and um i just thought about it and I, I opened the website and i started looking through it and it just it just spoke to me you know and specifically we have a program here in australia called the special forces direct recruitment scheme i started reading about that and uh it just let this fire in my belly that reminded me of like competition of triathlons and pushing myself harder and everything. And it just seemed to me like the perfect way to 
get out of my situation, to completely disconnect from temptations, to completely disconnect from anybody that might see me leaving as something that they're offended by and they feel the need to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but most importantly, it was something that was going to put me into a world of service. I was very uh, conscious of what I felt was a karmic debt that I'd built up, that I needed to repay society i guess in some way that was going to be beneficial for not just me and my family but for i guess the country as a whole to do something to be proud of to do something for other people so in about 2008 i set down the path of um applying for that program and i uh i approached it exactly like i approached the street environment i I thought the best way to do this would be to get known by everyone as much as I could. So, you know, we had to do a fitness test to, to get in. You only had to do one, but I did one every single month for uh, 12 months, just so I met as many people as possible. I showed them that I was really, really committed to this process that I was all in um, and I was ready to give it all. Um, They stopped me by about a month seven and said, Hey man, you don't need to keep coming here and doing these fitness tests. You know, we get it. you've done, you've done one, that was enough. So I was successful in going into the, um, the special forces direct recruitment scheme. So that was a, basically a fast track program, um, into the commandos, um, in Australia, we have two special forces units, one being, uh, SAS over on the West coast in Perth. And we have commandos here, um, on the East coast down in Sydney, um, so the program was to get into the commandos. Basically, you go through basic training as normal. You go through your infantry training as normal. Instead of going out to an infantry battalion, you go straight on to an advanced infantry course, which is run by commandos. And it is basically, a, I think it was a four-week smash course of just information, 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 uh, while doing field time and getting your skills up and all that. So basically designed to give you the skills that you would learn in two years of battalion life in, in four weeks. Um, and they do that, do that very well. So I went into the army. Um, yeah. So basic training, basic training was just such a shock to my system. You know, I, I, I was in a world where I thought I was somebody and, uh, I ended Mm. up in the army where, you know, here I am getting stripped of everything and, broken back down and you know coming to that realization that i'm an absolute nobody and Mm -hmm. um there was a point sort of two weeks in where i was really crushed you know i went to the range and you know picked up a rifle for the first time and was you know shooting a rifle trying to do a grouping um serial and i was shocking on a rifle and i'm here thinking shit you know I've, i've i've walked away from a world that i was you know somewhat good at and um, here I am into this new world where I've given everything, I've given it up. I can't go back and I suck at this job. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, uh, I was sort of, you know, I was broken. I pretty much rang Maya, who was my fiance at the time. I was almost in tears, just like, what have I done? You know, I, I've chosen a, an exit strategy. It's not going to work. I'm not even going to pass. I'm going to fail, you know, and, and she just talked some sense into me, stay the path and, uh, you know, I made good, really good friends during basic training. You know, there was probably, I think, 50, 55 odd recruits uh, that was part of the Special Forces Direct Recruitment Scheme for that year. Um, of those, probably 15 realistically had a chance. Um, you know, it was very much, I think, the program set up to 
trap some people into going into the infantry as it was to get some really good soldiers yeah. from different different areas in life and that's what that program does it brings in guys that have different experiences into a unit that could really values those so finished finished basic training so i pulled my pants up finished basic training um got through infantry training um got onto the ait course um you know and that was a massive sort of realization to it was sort of run like a selection course as well um there was a a really hardcore um pt that was uh ex-british royal marines um he was he was running the pt and if you know anything about royal marines you know they're they're not afraid of bastardization and and uh you know (laughs) bullying people getting people's faces and doing extremely hard work as well they like to do fucking push-ups i know that yeah yeah (laughs) this this guy's this guy's warm-ups for his pt were worse than his sessions you know wow just just hardcore stuff and he you could tell what was happening these guys were sort of figuring out who you know they didn't give a shit about basic training and infantry training they gave a shit about what you produced on that course there who you were and uh they set it up that they were really going to push you as far as they could to see who would break and who would take it who had the fitness levels and who didn't who had the mental uh uh, capacity to do it and who didn't um it was a full-on course and throughout that course you know by the end of it i think we only had 15 or whatever that went on to selection from the end of that um a lot of the guys would just just took themselves out of that course. They weren't so much. A lot of guys sort of got booted off, but a lot just took themselves off with realizing that, you know, it probably wasn't for them at the moment. Mm-hmm. At the time, they probably had an excuse for it. You know, I got bullied or whatever, or yeah, they didn't, right. let me, didn't let me finish this or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think if those blokes are honest with themselves, it's probably because they, I mean, if they, they did that, it's because they didn't have what it takes. Um, so that was a massive eye opener, um, you know, to get, to get uh, smashed by the very guys that you're trying to join, you know, it's, it's, it was very different experience for me, um, but I understood what was happening. Um, I got onto selection in 2010. Um, I had unsuccessful attempt on my first one. I just didn't prepare properly. Um, I think for me, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday. I think for me, it was that I felt like I'd achieved so much already to that point that just getting into the army and being where I was from who I was, I think I was, I rested on that and I was happy Mm. to sit at probably a lower tier than where I should have been. Um, But, you know, everything happens for a reason. And um, I ended up, so coming off selection, I was at the special forces uh, training school there for a while. I thought I'd be able to stay around there for 12 months and get back on the next course. Uh, didn't happen. Eventually, they're like, yeah, Steve, you know, um, you're a cool guy and whatever, but piss off, you need to go join a battalion. So I went to um, the 3rd Battalion, 3RAR, um, which was a parachute regiment at that stage. I figured going there, that was a sort of battalion that had the reputation for being, I guess, the harder one, doing, you know, air quotes. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was sort of that bridge in the gap, what I thought, between the other, other infantry units and special forces, which wasn't really true. They're all of the same standard. They're all of a really good standard here in Australia. Uh, went to 3RER. Um, so on that selection course, I think, five guys passed who were all very good friends of mine they went straight to second commando regiment while i went to the infantry battalion um at that time um those were on the same base here in sydney um so you know i was i was doing infantry things while looking over the fence and seeing my friends do special forces things Mm. um but i got 
I got pretty comfortable at three RER. Um, again, I slipped into that sort of mentality. I was one of the fitter blokes and, and, you know, one of the bigger blokes. And I sort of just rested on that. I was quite happy having a, a bit of respect there and getting along with everybody. Um, but, you know, I, at that time, they were going through a shift where they were losing their wings. Um, Special Forces were taking over the parachute capability completely. Um, and they're also getting moved to a garrison sort of city or town in Townsville in Queensland um, with another two um, infantry units. So the morale there was really, really low. And the chance to, I guess, the incentive to work hard wasn't really there. Um, there was no real reason to sort of push to, to do better there. I didn't feel that anyway. Um, now, there was a point where I was um, doing guard so we used to have a, a guard hut at the front of the base to let cars in and out um doing guard there um it's it's very regimental you've got to like wear your hat and be dressed properly and there's all rules now one of the rules is if you're sweeping gutters you're not allowed to be talking on your phone so i was uh sweeping gutters and i got a phone call from one of my mates who was a commando and he was calling me from afghanistan and um He's telling me about Afghan, you know, obviously with operational security, he can only tell me so much, but, you know, he's telling me the gist of it, that, you know, they're, they're getting in gunfights, they're doing this and that, they're having really, really impressive battle space effects, and they're, they're really doing the stuff that you see on the bloody, the recruiting posters and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. So while I'm on this phone call, I just hear this voice yelling, Oi! Oi! And I look up and I see this sergeant and he was an overweight sergeant, you know, didn't represent the uniform well. He wasn't known as a good sergeant. And he goes, get the fuck off your phone. You are not allowed to be on your phone on guard. And I'm just here on, on one ear. I've got a special forces commando. Yeah. Another ear. I've got this low performing infantry sergeant yelling at me for being on my fucking phone. So apologies for my swearing, but um, yeah, it's all right. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I'm Australian. That's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I've slipped the, the c word out yet, have I? No, <laughs> no, you can no, see that it's cultural. Happen. Yeah, it's good, cultural. Yeah. Good, good. You can. Good. See I think it. I will. I think I will further down when I talk about some of the boys I've met in the, uh, yeah. in the US <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> um, but anyway, here I am at this point. You know, I thought I was, you know, I was quite comfortable being where I was at three area, and I'm getting yelled at by this son. I'm like, Steve, what the fuck are you doing? You know, you should be there with those boys. So. I put my application back in to do selection again in 2012. Um, again, I gave everything to it. I prepared like a fucking madman. I got back into my zone of, um, uh, you know, training like a triathlete, basically. Um, and, and it was good that I had a good reputation at 3RR. They did give me space to train as much as I wanted. Um, then 3RR got a trip to Afghanistan. And, and in Australia, when trips come up, boys do not pass up trips. You know, you desperate to be on on trips because there's just not a lot of options uh, especially in infantry during your time you might might only get a couple um it's not as uh, it's not like the us where guys are going back to back to back to back when when there's a trip offered guys take it um i got put on this trip with three while i had uh, i was sorry i was just about to put my application in and um i spoke to my sort of um, um hierarchy said yeah look i don't want to I don't want to do the trip. I want to do selection. They were supportive of that. And they understood why I wanted to do that. Um, I put my application in. I think the CEO of the unit wrote on the application that he was giving up a, a trip to Afghanistan um, in order to do selection like it was a bad thing. But I think 
me as a special forces soldier, if I was looking at that piece of paper, I would go, shit, man, cool. This dude wants to be here, you know? So mm -hmm. I put my application in. I went through all the testing again, you know, the aptitude, um, the psych testing, the fitness testing and everything that you have to do here in order to get a spot on selection. Um, there's a lot of guys apply. This is the peak of Afghanistan war. Um, and our special force, especially commandos, were getting awesome jobs. So everyone wanted to go over there. There was a huge number of experienced infantry guys that were trying to get into the special forces. So a lot of guys apply for selection. They don't get put on selection. So I was uh, given the opportunity to do selection and um, off I went to selection. And, uh, you know, in my head this time, I had everything to lose. If I, uh, if I didn't pass, I was going back to a, a battalion which was 60% deployed um and i was moving up to queensland to an area townsville which i didn't really want to live at um so this time it was sort of do or die and i had a, a different appreciation for what they did at this point as well you know i had that that kick in the ass of experiencing battalion time and, and saying hey you know it's cool there's definitely awesome soldiers capable soldiers in the battalion but i want to do something more you know to me it was like i was playing really good basketball in some sort of semi-professional league and my mates were playing in the NBA. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's what I saw it as. And I went to selection with that mindset. Um, you know, the only way, you know, I was coming off was, a, you know, a real horrible injury and um, I was prepared. I was fit. I was in the right mindset and uh, you know, I got through it that time and uh, you know, after selection here, so that the selection course itself goes for uh Back then, I think it was like six weeks and it's full on, you know, it's definitely one of the harder ones, I think, within the world. There's a, you are disconnected from everything in your life for that entire period, living out in rural New South Wales. Um, you know, you go through a demarcation period of, um, you know, no food and uh, no sleep for three to four days, um, you know, put on, uh, putting through extremely physical tasks that whole time. That's, that's, that's the part where uh, we lose the most guys is that, that sleep and food deprivation because uh, that whole time during that course, you've got a piece of paper in your pocket, which is your withdraw own request form. So whenever it gets too tough, all you've got to do is go up to these tables they have set up at at every miserable stand that you're hmm. doing. If you're, if you're out field pushing a, a fully loaded truck in the mud for four hours nonstop, they're sitting out there drinking coffee at their desk. If you're in the pool doing a smash session in the pool for four hours where you are just in and out of the water, in and out of the water, holding a push-up position on the side of the water, in and out of the water, just miserable stuff like that, you know, in the shallow end, holding the rifle above your head, just stuff to break the people. Um, they're sitting there at the, at the end of the pool on their desk, you know, ready for withdrawal and request forms. And you will see guys in big numbers, you know, you start off in a section, you get split up into sections of like 12 guys. By the end of it, you'll have, you know, two or three guys in your section because everyone's gone. And, uh, you know, for, for the sociopathiness or the, 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 the psychopathiness, you know, every time someone sort of goes up and puts their hands up, you get fueled by that. You know, you're like, I'm one step closer, one man closer to getting through the end, to, through to the end, you know? And, um, there's yeah there's a navigational phase solo navigation you know weapons phases and all this stuff field phases and it's all through the whole time there's sleep deprivation and everything as well and um you know you're getting smashed physically so it's, it's a very very full-on course um so you get through that and straight off that you go into basically like back then it was like eight months of what we call a reinforcement cycle 
Um, so during that phase, you're doing all your, uh, we're an amphibious unit. So there's an amphib course, there's a, you know, an urban combat course, there's a close quarter fighting course, there's a hand-to-hand combat course, roping course, um, working with helicopters, parachute course, all that sort of stuff. And it's just back to back to back. You'll lose a bunch of guys through that period as well. Um, depends where they are in that process. They might be able to come back the next year to start where they came off, um, so you finish that and um, you, you get a green beret. And um, back then um, you're pretty much uh, going straight to Afghanistan as well. Um, it was sort of, you deployed, uh, we came off, a big group of us came off. Um, the reinforcement cycle went straight to Bravo Company, which was deploying in like a, a few months after that. So we pretty much came off, had some time with our family and then um, we uh, started our prep um, in the desert to uh, get ready to go off to the desert. And um, in uh, 2013, I deployed to Afghanistan as part of the uh, Special Operations Task Group to go take on the Taliban. Um, Yeah, so over in Afghanistan, uh, we sort of had two mission profiles over there. One of them was working with um, some of your guys, DEA fast teams. I think they're non-existent mm-hmm. anymore. Um, no. Yeah, but we had we had DEA fast operators attached to us and we would go out and hit uh, Taliban drug labs. So taking out their sources of income. Um, really sort of hectic jobs when they first started until the Taliban, obviously learning our tactics started um, just filling them with IEDs. And what they would do was do cookups during the day and then rig everything up at night for when we went and hit it, or they would just do yeah, very small cookups during the day, smaller places, and then still rigging up places at night when we hit it. So during my trip, there was a lot of dealing with IEDs on those sort of jobs. Um, the other side of that was we did, I guess, uh, clearances of Taliban-held villages, and um, we were doing that in areas where these were hardened Taliban warfighters, you know, going down to Helmand province and stuff like that. Um, we were operating in areas where not everybody was operating, and um, my unit, I can't take credit for this because I only a small part of it, but my unit, 2 Commando, we really made a name for ourselves in Afghanistan by being a extremely effective warfighting unit for the small size that we are, extremely capable. And um, we took a ton of Taliban fighters and some of their hardest fighters out of the battle space. Um, so we sort of built our reputation there. Um, we were work, working alongside uh, US, so we were supported by... US air crews, so we don't deploy our helicopters and stuff. So all our missions were flying in on US choppers, Mm. um, you know, US uh, Chinooks and US Blackhawks supported by uh, US Apaches. Um, You know, our our medivac system was was US, you know, a lot of our um, platforms in the sky doing the uh, reconnaissance and all that were US as well, you know, and our guys would help them, would would sit in with them and help them. so we have a really, really good relationship with US forces, especially US SOF. Um, so Afghanistan, we took some, uh, some big wins and some, some heavy losses as well. Um, you know, we had a, uh, a bomb go off on uh, uh, one of the IED, uh, sorry, one of the drug labs um, that took out one of our blokes and also a bloke from 75th that we had attached to us. Um, 
both of them. So our bloke didn't return to work, but he's been, you know, he's, he's okay. Um, and the, the Ranger, he returned to work and he's, I think, still operating in the uh, nice. US, I think. Yeah. So he's an awesome dude. I won't say his name. I don't want to, you know, get anyone in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> OPSEC or anything like that. But, um, yeah, yeah, he was, he was, a, he was a good dude. Um, he is a good dude. Um, uh, what else? We sort of, uh, we had a, a, a helicopter sort of crash hard landing, which took out one of our snipers with a brain injury. Um, he never returned to work either. Um, then we had an incident one day. Sorry, we had another incident. One of the boys got um, shot uh, in the head, in his helmet and through his, in his shoulder. Um, he sort of returned to work a few years later in a sort of reduced capacity um then we had one day where we got drawn into a pretty heavy gun fight we had three teams my team and two other teams on one side of the river um and some other teams on i think another two teams on the other side um but they obviously couldn't get us come over to us it was the river was just a massive river so it was sort of our three teams operating on one side pretty disconnected by a considerable distance. Um, one of the teams got into a gunfight and their team leader um, got hit in the leg really, really badly. Um, so the other team, my team and another team went sprinting over there to go assist them. Um, on the way over there, the other team that was running in, they got hit by an ambush. Um, so they got drawn into another gunfight. Um, that team of, of Taliban fighters ended up moving into a compound and barricading themselves into a, uh, a compound, a big thick-walled mud compound, probably like internally the size of two shipping containers. But I don't know if you know the walls over there, you know, you're not shooting through walls and stuff over there. Right. They're the ultimate cover. So they barricaded themselves in there. There were six fighters and um, I guess – Three teams got drawn into that gunfight then while handling a, uh, a Kasavak as well. So um, that was pretty much uh, almost close enough to touch them. You know, that was fighting through a doorway. Um, these guys weren't, weren't giving up. Um, they were, were hardened fighters and they were very, very heavily armed. And although we had them pinned, we, we couldn't achieve a break-in. So unfortunately, or, uh, we lost the bloke there where uh, one of the team leaders, uh, Cameron Baird, who earned himself a Victoria Cross in the process, which is Australia's highest military honour. I guess it's like your uh, Medal of Honour, I, I guess. Mm -hmm. Is that the, yeah. Uh, he got that, you know, uh, he, he died, you know, and he, and he uh, earned that through that process. But he... Uh, in that doorway, it was sort of uh, a bit of a stalemate. No one was, was sort of making any headway and he decided to sort of do what he could to draw the fire by moving across that doorway so guys could come in beside him. And he did it a couple of times and unfortunately ended up taking a round to the head um, and he died there. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously when that sort of stuff happens, the, the, the fighting doesn't stop. There's not a, uh, everyone pause, we've got a... Uh, you know, KIA, we need to deal with it. You know, the guys just keep on rolling. And, and one of my biggest takeaways from that day, actually, because I was, I was a, um, a machine gunner. Um, so I had a belt-fed machine gun on that job. And I was the only one on that job that had it. So I was put into a position just above that gunfight, probably 50 to 100 meters away, facing back down the green belt, just in case they had a reinforcement. So that was their most likely um, approach. So I'm facing down the green belt. And I was in that position where listening to my comms, I could really hear what was going on without having the stress of being directly involved. So I was consuming all that, what was happening. And um, you know, I remember when that that uh, the call came on the radio that um, you know the team leader three one was KIA, 
it was sort of a moment's pause and then everything just kept going again. You know, the, the guy underneath him just stepped up, filled his spot, gunfight keeps going, you know, and, and in the background of that, guys are now ordering a, or organizing a second Kazavak to get him out of there. So, um, you know, it's, it's real over there. And when shit like that happens, it doesn't just stop. There's no, there's no pause, you know, that day as well, it was like 50 odd degrees Celsius, which is, I don't know, what's that one very 10 hot. or something? Very, hot. very yeah. hot, you know, hot. and it was guys, we were, had guys going down with heat and stuff as well. And uh, we ended up, you know, um, achieving the break-in and um, we, uh, you know, we, we finished that gunfight and um, did what we need to do, made our exfil, got out of there. Um, unfortunately, yeah, we took that casualty um, mm -hmm. and that wasn't the end of the trip. We still had more war fighting to go and, um, you know, there's no time to, to mourn and stuff over there. You've just got to get on with it, guys, process when they come home. And, um, you know, losing that bloke, he was a... Uh, a pivotal member of my platoon one of the or probably the most important person when it comes to leadership within our platoon he was a a i guess a uh just a guy that was motivated in for the right reasons you know he was an awesome operator a fair man but a fierce gunfighter and um he was a bit of a superhero in our platoon so losing him definitely made everyone feel very very vulnerable and oh, um you know, that gap in his leadership. Um, and that same day, the other bloke that got shot was his best mate, another team leader, another massive guy in our platoon. So we lost two of our biggest team leaders out of the four team leaders that we have. Um, and there was a massive gap in leadership that took a long time for my platoon to recover from. You know, this stuff just doesn't happen and we move on with small units. There's gaps that, that take a long time to be filled, you know, and especially when you've got guys that are so unique, um, and so strong and so uh, inspirational to other people, you know, it's takes a while for someone to fill that gap. Um, so uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a good and a bad trip, I guess. We, um, we came home from that. Um, I went to domestic counterterrorism. Um, so that was 2014. So over in Australia, we have a, um, a unit called the tactical assault group which um, the commandos run here in Sydney. Um, Perth, the SAS, they have a sort of an offshore, offshore recovery sort of aspect of that where we handle all the domestic counterterrorism. So what we are is a last line of defence for our government. Um, we, have, we don't have SWAT teams over here. We have each state has a specialist police unit um, who are trained in special tactics, special weapons. Um, you know, they've got dog capabilities now and all that sort of stuff. And if it's, up, it's above their capability, um, that's when we step in. And um, we obviously don't go in unless it's necessary because we're not going in there to, to make friends. We go in right. very, very heavy handed. Our, our, our mission is just to save the lives of hostages. And we will do that as fast and as hard as possible. You know, we are making a, a mess. We're using explosions <laughs> and uh, sorry, using explosives and we're going in hard. Hostages are going to have their feelings hurt um, because we've got a bigger picture and we need to get there as fast as we can. Um, so it's a very, very good experience to go onto the tactical assault group. That is, I guess, about as elite, or it is as elite as you can come in Australia. Um, you are doing all the money. This was back when, you know, terrorism was a bigger threat than, than uh, COVID. So um, we were, uh, <laughs> oh. we had 
all the all the money thrown at us. Um, you know, you are going through thousands and thousands of rounds each week. We are doing all the uh, all the cool shit, jumping out of helicopters, you know, roping down skyscrapers where we're doing exercises, um, you know, shutting down train stations and sports stadiums and stuff like that. You're doing all the really fast action hero sort of stuff there. So I spent my time, initially I was a method of entry operator, which is a, an explosives guy. Um, it's a very, very stressful job. Um, basically making shape charges, specific charges oh, yeah. under, under very <laughs> restricted, very restricted timeframes. Um, and being when you're on the tactical assault group, you're on a massively reduced notice to move your whole year that you're on there. You have periods where you be able to go on leave and they will say 50% manning and stuff, but it's a very, very high demanding job. You don't really get to do much. You know, you've got to, you've got to be, when you get called, you've got to come to work straight away and you've got to be mounted on the back of vehicles um, within a certain time frame. So it's full on, but you learn how to become a pretty capable assaulter during that time because you are doing so much um, CQB, you know, uh, room combat, uh, entering buildings, all that sort of stuff. So you start to know how to, read your team really, really well and move without becoming a hindrance to anybody and knowing where you should be at all times and becoming a very good reactive shooter as well. Um, you know, getting your, your shooting times. We do a lot of range time up against the, the beeper and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, that was an awesome, sorry. Then I finished that up as a fast driver. And to me, that's the best job. Fast driver is the best job in the commandos because you're basically getting paid to drive out. We have these SUVs, you know, most uh, tactical units have mm -hmm. them that you're basically the driver in your team. So you get to go away and go to racetracks and stuff like that and spend days on racetrack learning how to drive fast and learning how to drive fast in crazy ways and it's mm -hmm. it's being i'm a yes. car guy i'm a car guy you know i've got you know down in the garage i've got a, i've got a low rider of a 63 right. parlor down there uh, i've had all sorts of cars and um being a car guy man i loved that job i really did and uh so i finished up 2014 i had, I had a really good experience you know at that point my company was super super bonded as well we'd come from iraq uh, sorry afghanistan together um fighting together and then uh doing that domestic counterterrorism together. We were a really, really bonded company and uh, I really enjoyed my time there and I've got really great memories from that period. Uh, 2015, we, we got involved with the war with against ISIS in uh, Iraq. Uh, I deployed in 2015 as a second rotation of Australian Special Forces in Iraq. We went over there with really, really high hopes that we were going to go take the fight to ISIS. Um, unfortunately, when we got there, it was a... Uh, <laughs> There's a very political situation in Iraq. You know, Iran and the US were both backing Iraq. There's obviously tension between those two, uh, um, yeah. two countries. Yeah. So basically, allegedly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, look, my understanding of the battle space over there is inside the wire, the training, and um, also the control of the airspace was the coalition. Outside the wire, uh, it was Iranian-led. Um, so we weren't, I was out at a base called El Assad Air Base, which at the first Iraq war was, I think, 30,000 US troops. It was huge. You know, one of those bases with fucking dominoes and whatever had a massive right, yeah. swimming pool, diving. Yeah, huge. But we got there. It was post-apocalyptic. It was abandoned. Um, it was about... Oh, I think it was about 15 commandos, about 15 Navy SEALs. Um, we were sent there. We were pretty much on the base. We had Marines that came over that supplied. So U.S. Marines that were 
the base logistics and all So um, we were, it was pretty, we were surrounded by ISIS um, out there in that position in Iraq. Allowed to retaliate. Um, you know, we would go to the front base to go get um, local workers to bring them in to do jobs because we had to build our own base there as well. We had nothing. We had to hotwire machinery, hotwire old F trucks that the US left after the first um, Iraq war. Everything we did, we had to do ourselves. It was lucky that we had some guys sent with us who had a plumbing background, electrician, mm. that sort of stuff that helped us really. We were living out of tents and uh, we built a whole base out of what the US had left behind, which was pretty much everything. Um, you know, we had hot wide generators running stolen air conditioning units and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was really, really an experience. You know, it was, it was cool when we first got there because we'd go on adventures and we'd, we'd go looking for Saddam's gold. We like would go out to the bunkers and do all this and like, there's got to be gold hidden here somewhere, but we didn't find any gold. So, you know, that was- That, well, that had been taken a long time. Yeah, yeah, we realized that. <laughs> yeah. You know, they had, they had yeah. a- um, they had a warehouse there, the Iraqis on the base that we called. So in, a in Australia, we have a massive hardware chain called Bunnings Warehouse, where they're these huge, huge warehouse where you go for everything you need, hardware, gardening, and blah, blah, blah. So we called this place Bunnings Warehouse. And it was a huge, huge warehouse that the Iraqis had filled with all the stuff that they'd pillaged when America had left. So all the stuff that they thought was of value. So you went in there and... Um, um, it was just like TVs from 10 years ago, computers from 10 years ago, like putt, there was this mini golf course. I guess they had a mini golf thing set up there. This is old machinery, like everything outdated. But when we went in there, we realized that, look, anything of value on this base has been <laughs> taken. There is not a scrap that's yeah. been left behind. Um, it was funny. We, we all wanted to get into this place we called Bunnings and the SEALs, um, they decided one night because we hadn't got access. None of us get access. They, everyone wanted to find out what was in this warehouse that was being guarded. And the SEALs, they, they broke in. They did some black ops and broke in there and got busted. And because of that, we were sort of told that we could come in invited. So thank you, SEALs. We went in there and we got hmm. to we got to experience it. Um, I love Navy SEALs. Like I love, I love bullying them, and I love, uh, you know, I've worked with them uh, or trained with them, I should say. And uh, I, you know, I've never met a bad SEAL. I've always enjoyed um, the banter between us. So, um, yeah, shout out to those boys. But um, anyway, Iraq was a bit of a, a for me, a demoralizing, I guess, trip. You know, I went over there to go war fighting, and that's why I joined a war fighting unit. We were stuck training Iraqi troops who um, really weren't that interested in fighting um you know um they they believed all the propaganda that isis was putting out and isis was very successful with their propaganda um you know we felt it even in our countries with the stuff they were putting on social media um this the fear campaigns they were running they they had people like you know pr people putting this stuff out there you know the the beheadings and the and the the torching of uh, to, uh, sort of the torching of people you know they put that stuff all over social media and the iraqi soldiers were very very scared of isis so much so that they believed in uh you know in legends and myths about them um and it was very hard to get them to really commit to war fighting against them you know we'd watch them go out on missions and pretty much turn around at, at the first sort of sign of any sort of uh uh 
you know, combat or whatever, just a few pot shots at them from a distance. And they're like, oh, it's a sniper. We've got to get out of here and turn around. Um, so eventually, you know, through support from, we had a lot of support. A lot of our guys were helping the, uh, the, the air assets, dropping bombs and all that sort of stuff. So they were doing that out of Baghdad. We had a huge effects um, doing that, dropping bombs. And, and through that, Iraqi sort of got the motivation to, to push forward and uh, go out there and do some war fighting. But, um, you know, for me, it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, going out and seeing ISIS fighters on the edge. So we had an entryway where we'd go, yeah, go let in these um, tradesmen and stuff, some local tradesmen or people that were, you know, trading information for, for fuel or whatever they were doing. And um, you would see ISIS fighters just out there watching you and, you know, being that close to the enemy and knowing how... Uh, how psycho and how bad those people were, what they were doing, you know, they would, they would send rockets into our base because they knew that the air assets would watch us and then they would go and do whatever they wanted external to the base, you know, going through and doing all their uh, the horrendous things that they did to the local population of Iraq. Um, so uh, it was what it was. I came back off that. I was uh, a pretty sort of, I was in a space where I really wasn't, in the mindset anymore you know i was like cool i've, I've done what i achieved i've done what i wanted i came here i've got a green beret i've done war fighting ops you know i've uh i've got my myself to a point where i think i'm, I'm one of the respected members here you know um no one was talking bad about me or anything we don't really get feedback but mm. i never heard anything bad so that's that's good i guess and um i was sort of looking at other options and and, and within that was looking at getting out of the military as well and uh just so happened that uh a friend of mine who uh, he was more senior than me, a couple of ranks above me. He actually took me through a lot of my training uh, to become a commando. Uh, he was a soldier that I respected a lot. I liked the way that he soldiered. He was a product of the uh, direct uh, recruitment scheme as well. So he had that bit of a, he wasn't institutionalized, you know, a bit more of a yeah. free thinker in our environment. And um, he, uh, he said to me, Hey man, you know, I've got a dog here. You know, have you ever been, have you ever thought about doing dogs? And we didn't have a dog. We did have a dog capability, I guess. I, I saw it only a couple of times during 2014, during some uh, training exercises when I was on the tactical assault group, we had some dogs with us, but they weren't really, it was still very new. They weren't part of the companies yet. They were still trying to figure it out. We were very late adopters of the dog program. You know, it probably arrived, I think in 2012, 13-ish. And, I, and I, I don't think it became really part of the capability until my group of handlers sort of pushed it in 2000 uh what's that 16 so he said to me hey man i've got i've got a uh, opportunity do you want to come do the uh the dog course the special operations military working handlers uh sorry special operations military working dog handlers course and uh I was like, yeah, shit, you know, I like dogs. Uh, he's got, yeah, I've got this dog. I think he's going to suit you. You know, he's a very, very hard dog and he probably needs someone who's going to, you know, respond to that, you know, okay and not have any fear working with him. And uh, I think you should come down and meet him. So, uh, you know, I foolishly agreed that weekend to go in by myself and uh, go meet this dog and take him for a walk um, and having no, absolutely no experience with working dogs at all. You know, I, I I just thought I'd go in there, pick up his lead, take him for a walk. So I went in there uh, on the weekends, you know, went out by myself. I went into the, so we have this Allen Handlers, uh, sorry, kennel area at the end of our base. I went in there, 
opened the gate, walked down to, to the kennel, and here I am confronted by this dog, this 34-kilo Belgian Malinois that is just smashing the gate to get at me, spitting at me, lunging at me, barking, clawing, giving me every sort of behavior telling me, do not come in this kennel. So uh, being that I've never anyway. ever, oh, well, look, I'll tell you, being that I, I, I've never had uh, experience with dogs, I looked at him and said, yep, no, I'm not going in there, bro. See you later. And I, I turned around, I walked away and I get to the end of the kennel bank. So he was sort of in the middle. I get to the end of the kennel bank to the gate and I just stopped myself and internally said, Steve, what are you doing? I'm like, you are a commando, not a coward. Go back there and go take that dog for a fucking walk. So with all the all the fake courage that I could muster, I went in there and I put on my front and I opened the door, put his uh, his 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 uh, collar on, put his lead on, and uh, I took him for a walk. And that was the the day that Googe and my relationship started. That was the day that my uh, career within the uh, the attack dog uh, cell started and uh, you know, I went on that walk and every single time Gooch stopped or flinched, I, I paused and uh, thought he was going to attack me, but we, we got through it. Yeah. You got goosebumps uh, every time. Like here it comes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I did, I'd only ever handle pets, you know, and <laughs> this, this guy, the, 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 the build up that he gave me was, you know, this is a serious dog and he was, he was a very serious dog, you know? So over here, I guess our process of becoming a handler is, in the perfect scenario, and this is, I'm talking about back when I did, I'm, things have changed now, but in the perfect scenario, they were taking guys that had a bit of experience as assaulters first. They didn't want to get guys straight off the reinforcement cycle, fresh commandos, because they wanted to, you'd want guys picking up a lead that know how to read the battle space, know how to read a room, know how to not trip people over with a dog, know how to move tactically and not be a burden to anybody you know and also be there where they're needed so i was i guess in that perfect spot doing five years or whatever i've done four years as an assaulter already and um uh, over here we do a on the job training course initially which is a four-week course where we pump the guys with information um every aspect of, of, you know, dogs from training, you know, uh, all kennel stuff, um, um, medical, everything. We do a four week. And we're also during that four week phase, we're trying to figure out with the dogs that we have, who's suited for what dog uh, personality traits suited to certain dogs. You know, this is a, a perfect scenario. It doesn't always happen like this. You know, uh, these days the, the retention rates different. So a lot of guys are going into the cell, which are a lot newer and also, you know, the, the obtaining dogs, it's not always a perfect situation where you've got four dogs, green dogs that are ready to be teamed. You know, it's all over the place. So mm -hmm. we do a four week on the job training package. Uh, you get through that, you get teamed with a dog. And then a few weeks later, we start our dog course, which I think was all this eight weeks, six, eight weeks, I think. Um, very intense. Um, you know, we start off in the classroom and we are, uh, we're doing everything. So you're going over the basics of dog anatomy. We're doing uh, medical training with the dog. So we go out to um, a hospital. We actually work on cadavers. Um, and anyone that's a dog lover that's ever worked on, on dog cadavers knows it's a fucking horrible experience. I hate it. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm quite comfortable around human dead bodies. It doesn't seem to phase me whatsoever, but dealing with dogs, I mean, I do it, but you know, it's like afterwards I can't eat for, for a while and I'm, you know, I can, I can still smell it. And it's just, you know, it's, it's someone's pet that's been donated for research and, and, you know, it's, 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 
you still you can see you know that that dog was loved and it's different yeah. you know so I, I hate doing that but we do it and it's it's really valuable training you know we do uh, trauma care for the dogs and everything so the guys know what to do when the dog gets shot we know how to deal with kennel issues as well um so we go through that we go through you know classical conditioning uh you know all the pavlov and all that sort of stuff we go into operant conditioning learning about the quadrants of dog training really trying to drill that into guys to get them to understand you know in the dog training world that positive and negative is not good or bad positive is you know adding something and negative mm -hmm. is taking something away and we really try and get them to understand that terminology and how to problem solve when you've got a dog how to use areas of that quadrant of those quadrants uh, uh to figure out your solution so we do a lot of time with that you know before guys are uh given a uh, putting an e-collar on the dog they're learning e-collar in the classroom they're going through up to the maximum setting on their fingers you know, so you go all the way up and see what it feels like. We are, um, we do an exercise where we um, get the guys to put them on and, you know, on a level, the lowest level possible, just like we would a dog. Um, without talking, we get the guys to, you know, we give them a task and get the guy, you know, the guy wearing the e-collar to do that task without giving him any information. It's all just through um, stim on the e-collar. So that gives them a good understanding of how to use that, that, left and right of arc uh, with that positive punishment and also using negative reinforcement as well with the, with the e-collar. Um, so we do all that. We teach guys, you know, how to use a, a prong correctly and everything before they're even uh, given a dog to train. And then when it comes to training the dog, we train our own dogs. You know, I think the guys have now got a setup where they're getting, starting to get more dogs that have been trained. I think, uh, Jerry Bradshaw, I think, supplied some of the dogs the boys have now, um, and I think I think they were pretty good as well. Um, there's a there's a there's a group in Australia that have supplied the dogs. Some dogs canine solutions, I think they're called. Um, mm -hmm. But when I was in there, um, it was, and they're still training it this way, that you learn how to train a dog. You're not a dog handler, or you are, but you're learning the training aspects so that even if you've got a dog like I did, Gooch was given to me. He had already done the bulk of his fundamental training was at a good level, but you need to know how to train a dog because you go out, once you get a dog, you are out on your own with that dog, with your company, and you need to know how to problem solve. You need to know how to identify an issue, how to work that issue, how to have outcome focused training. You know, we drill that into guys. Uh, when we go do a serial, you know, for instance, to say we've got a, a bunch of buildings booked to do uh, clearances to a bite suit. We've got some blind, some with bite suits in there. You know, and we will say, you know, we're going out here to do this search, search uh, training. Um, you know, what's your major outcome for this? And guys will say, you know, oh, you know, my dog's not outing, so I want to work on the out. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. you know, we're out here. Your outcome is for your dog to locate and engage that decoy successfully. If you want to do bite work, we can do bite work another time. Or we can, you don't participate if you don't think you're a level and we'll bring the decoy out and we'll do some one-on-one -on -one bite work training for you to get your out, whatever it be. We need, guys need to be able to understand that aspect of dog training that, you know, you need to problem solve. You need to pick your environments and pick your training scenarios for when you're going to problem solve. And uh, although, you know, it's only a little time we spend on dogs, the guys do learn a lot, you know. I was, uh, uh, so I did my course, yeah. Um, we do a lot of uh, uh, scenario. You get to a point when you're bonded with the dog, you're working with the dog, we do lots of scenario training. And so the qualification for us is, two big day cereals and one big night cereal, um, which will involve a infill, um, which will involve a, um, 
a, uh, a target, you know, prosecution of a target, moving through a target, whatever that be, it will have multiple phases to it and then an exfiltration as well. Um, there'll usually be linked tasks during the day serials. So guys will have to train their dogs to be able to go from, uh, you know, a bite serial to go and do tracking straight after, um, which you guys would know is a really, really complicated thing. Mm -hmm. It takes some time to, to get a dog to retask. Um, although we are a very, very, young capability the good thing about our capability is it was created by people that were the best in that world you know the, the sas helped raise our capability and all the training and all the principles of of what we do came from the best programs in the world so they went through their tests and adjust and got their programs and we took the best of the best and we made a program out of that um, so gooch and i got qualified off the back of that and uh, I went to go work with Bravo Company as a, as a dog handler. Um, that was uh, initially I was, so most of our operational time was, um, sorry, all of it was on the domestic counterterrorism team again. So this time I was obviously a uh, combat assault dog handler within that <clears throat> team, which is obviously a very different experience, um, brings its own challenges. You know, everything you're doing, you're now bringing a dog. So fast roping out of a chopper, you know, sailing up sailing down a high high rise building jumping out of planes and boats and helicopters you know everything you're doing you're now bringing a dog along um and it's it's a steep learning curve um especially for the dogs and um you know we can talk about that the issues within a special forces unit how the problems that we have with time frames and trying to get dogs qualified you know and applying that pressure and sometimes applying too much pressure um yeah we'll go ahead i'll tell you what we'll go ahead and break here yep and then yep. uh, when we come back from the commercial break, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, and I want to, I have a couple of questions. I want to back up just a little bit. Um, and uh, so just uh, guys stick around, check the uh, bottom of the show notes. If you fast forward through the commercial, all the um, discount codes are there. So we will be right back. We have a long standing relationship with the guys over at hits canine training conference. Uh, it's truly America's premier canine seminar. It is the largest. It is the best. Um, they cover every important topic in the canine industry, hundreds and hundreds of vendors, thousands of canine people there. Everybody, you know, in this industry is there. Ted and I will be teaching hits 2022 is being held in Orlando, Florida, August 16th to the 19th. Also check out their website hits They have other classes that they're putting out online, uh, zoom classes and all kinds of other things they are offering in-person classes leading up to hits 2022. Orlando, Florida, August 16th to the 19th. Check it out, hitsk9.net. Everyone knows me, knows that I live on chicken nuggets and Coors Light. So uh, that doesn't mean your dog should, though. Um, our friends at Kinetic um, are, make it a, a point to fuel working dogs, and they know that it can be tough, and they need high-quality food, unlike me, to give them energy and the nutrients that they require. I just subsist on air and you know Coors Light, which, but the dogs can't. They actually have to work. So for that, we asked... Kinetic and Kinetic has come up with a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is made specifically for working in sport dogs. They have a full line of foods and supplements available, and they've been working to perfect their line for thousands of dogs and hundreds of departments across the U.S. You can buy it locally online or at Tractor Supply, or you can get it at Chewy. So head over to their website, kineticdogfood.com, 513-615-6904. And get them on the socials at Kinetic Dog Food. So probably the number one 
product I've ever advertised for or used that set that does what they say is quick turn by vet care. Uh, I have it uh, at my house. I have it at the kennel. I have it at the fun house. I have it at the uh, doggy daycare. I have my trainers have it at their house. It is unbelievable how it works. You guys have all heard Ted and I talk about it, how we've gotten tagged by dogs or dogs do, you know, if you're dealing with working dogs, weird stuff happens, right? Cuts that, how the hell that happened? Bites, scratches, all kinds of things that happen, especially if you're doing anything in the wooded area, they get tore up. Uh, the quick derm by vet care. It is no exaggeration. It is great. So once daily treatment for any skin condition or small wounds to help stop little issues from becoming big ones comes in sprays, ointments, or dressing. Quick derm is great at creating a protective barrier and promoting wound healing. The best thing too is they have a discount code. Get on their website, vetcare.us. That's vetcare.us. Put in the discount code 10WDR in capital letters, 10WDR for 10% off your first order. These next guys uh, have actually been on the show and we instructed at uh, the first uh, Tripwire conference down in Florida. Uh, Jim O'Brien was a guest on the show. Uh, and he runs NCK9, who has now come onto the show as a sponsor. Um, Jim's been around for quite a long time, about 13-ish years, uh, with experience handling and training law enforcement canines. Um, he uses real-world deployments to develop training program and not rely only on their experience, but current experiences from most of their national canine teams and handlers to provide the best canine partner that you guys can, can purchase. They provide pet training and police canine services based out of Four Oaks, North Carolina, and they serve the surrounding areas. Feel free to give Jim a call, a text, carrier pigeon, however you want to get a hold of him uh, to, to talk to him about police canine training or pets and techniques and methodologies. So hit him up at 919-438-0141 or J O'Brien. That's J O B R I E N at N C letter K number nine dot us. Check the show notes. We'll put it there. All right, everybody. We're back working dog radio broadcasting a bite with Steve Moherrick from Australia um, got pretty far into his background, like all the way up to where we're graduated with the dogs. Uh, I, I love it that they make you do training. Um, that's really not a thing here. Um, no. Not in police work, not in military. Um, some of the military units get to, you know, like when I worked the West coast seal contract for Cobra, the guys by time, time they get there their work up with their dog all the way to deployment is about a year so you can actually take time to teach them about operant conditioning but nobody yeah. ever does yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you just want scenarios and we got to you know get everybody up up to speed for that um especially in that program because they were doing one one tour with the dog and then going on to something else yeah 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 um yeah so back when you were uh just a regular assaulter, not a regular assaulter, I guess. That, but uh, you know, as a, an assaulter, did <laughs> you, you did, did you guys have guy. <laughs> dogs deployed with you? Did you have like experience to see them work? No, no, no. So when I was in Afghanistan, um, yeah, as I said, that was very young capability. We, when I was in Afghanistan, 2013, two handlers came over midway through the trip, expecting to have dogs come over with them, and they didn't. That didn't happen. It was decided oh. it wasn't for whatever reason they weren't ready. Where Perth SAS 
they had dogs over in Afghanistan, but we didn't. We don't work together in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the air assets for four days, then they'd have the air assets for four days. Um, you know, different partner forces, we didn't work together. Right. So I never got to see it. As I saw dogs on, on one exercise when I was on domestic counterterrorism. Um, and that was, I guess, that that causes that caused some issues for me when I was dog handler. You know, I was very much having to sell the capability. Yeah. Where where when what happened with Perth is their soldiers got to see how fucking good dogs were in Afghanistan. You know, they really they they, they love them in Perth. Or they love you know compared to what the rep the the, the relationship that our soldiers have with dogs, they loved mm-hmm. them. They always wanted around because they saw them in Afghanistan, absolutely you know decimating people and and doing the job to an awesome level. And uh, kudos to those dogs and those fucking handlers. And uh, for us, it was different. You know, arriving into my company in. Uh, was that 2016 back onto domestic counterterrorism with a dog, I had to sell, sell that capability. So I was very, very fortunate that I had a good reputation with my company. I, I'd been around a while. Um, no one had any issues. I had great relationships with everyone, including hierarchy. Um, so I was really able to put that dog wherever I wanted it. Um, they trusted my ability to run my own admin and all that. Cause that's what you have to do as a handler. You're organizing everything. And um I'm all over that sort of stuff. So that got me that sort of level of respect to be able to bring that dog, to prove that dog. I would also do things and back onto my mentality of being seen and getting known is I would, when I was working Googe, I had a obedience routine that was above and beyond what other guys were doing. And I did that deliberately and I did it around people so that people got comfortable with my ability to run a dog. So they don't, understand anything that's going on a regular assaulter but if you're within their their site and you're doing some really polished obedience they're like shit man he's good with a dog okay so it's all part of selling capability to me mm-hmm. it's 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 molding perceptions um showing people that you are working that dog you're not just kenneling it but you're out doing that obedience training with that dog and um you know i bring him around the boys a lot or dog was always there you know there's times when you know, the dog is allowed to be sort of be social in times when the dog isn't, you know, when we're rigged up, when the dogs is rigged up, no one's patting the dogs. Yeah. Um, we're a very, we're an off leash capability. So I should say that I think I missed this where uh, we're an off leash capability. You know, we are as tip as special forces as, as you want to put it, where um, the dogs are capable of working within a team environment. You know, the dogs do not bite other assaulters and there's training that goes into that and time that goes into that to make sure that that happens. And a lot of, how, did, how just, real quick, how did you get the guys to buy into that? Cause you know, in the beginning, they're got a, <laughs> got an eye. It Fucker, was, bite me in the ass. I know it's coming. Know, it was just, it was just being there. You know, it was like in dog training, it was baby steps, you know, being there doing some stuff where they weren't sort of in the way of the dog and slowly bringing that back, you know, just like we're training gunfire, you know, the dog gets exposures from a big distance and we're doing activities, bringing that gap until we've got a dog that's, that's calm and workable within a range of someone shooting over its head. Um, so I think the way that I, that I managed that was just being there and being around and, uh, and uh, yeah, baby steps. <laughs> So I think uh, was it that year as well that um, I was fortunate enough um, to get offered an international engagement to go to um, Camp Pendleton to um, go to the uh, Special Forces Canine Symposium that uh, one of your guests, uh, Dustin, Dustin mm-hmm. Wynn runs. Yeah. Um, so I was fortunate enough to go over there with another bloke um, 
you know, we wanted to bring dogs and I really wanted to bring Googe. So I was so proud of Googe. And um, uh, we couldn't because there is a huge cost of bringing dogs. I've heard, yeah, we, we've heard yeah. it like in, yeah. insane. Yeah. You know, you're, you're lucky enough to go on these international engagements of them paying for that as a soldier, you know, as two soldiers, especially something within the dogs, which, you know, it was sort of, it wasn't snipers, it was dogs, you know, so it didn't really have that, that appeal yet. And uh, with that, that they weren't really so willing to throw money at it yet. Um, but I was really good. I had really understanding command that saw the value in that they sent us over. I got to meet uh, Dustin and uh, do some training with Dustin. Uh, I consider him a friend. You know, he's a super passionate guy, you know, uh, what he's done with the, you know, over at Camp Pendleton is awesome. What he does now with his business, awesome again. You know, he's a he's a really passionate guy. And I think one of the sort of pillars, I think, in the US of, uh, of working dog training, you know. Um, Do you want to take this time to talk any shit about of all the international dog handlers? <laughs> who parties the hardest? <laughs> who can, uh, who yeah, can like, can. stay uh, up the latest? Uh, and, secret, you know, service. Uh, secret service. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Secret service. Secret service. Secret uh, we, service. We had we had uh, Hurricanes Handler on here. <laughs> yeah, he's he, he's a mate. I like so 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 yeah. at that symposium we had uh, ourselves representing Australia. So two commando. Um, we had Navy SEALs, seventy fifth. Um, you know, Marsoc Marines, a bunch of specialist uh, police handlers from uh, I think New Mexico, uh, Albuquerque. Um, I think Ohio, maybe I can't remember. Um, we had the secret service there. Um, it was a really, really good bunch of people and being adult special forces and within that mm -hmm. community, we don't, we don't really bond by training as much as we bond by drinking. <laughs> so yeah. there was a, there was a lot of that going down in, in, uh, Oceanside. Um, you know, I did, I did attend that, uh, the purple church that, 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 club there the strip club Ocean there size nice. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah God. i did uh did get myself into some trouble there as well that saw me not come to one of the training days sorry sorry dustin yeah. um, <laughs> oh, <my> <laughs> but um that was an awesome trip you know that really at that point going over there um i mean as 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 australian special forces we're very humble and very private with our capability you know it's just the way it is you know it's very I can know there'd be guys, my, my, uh, um, uh, appearance on social media would be annoying some guys, you know, they don't, they're very quiet professionals in our world. Mm -hmm. So going over to that symposium, I was very much in the mentality that shit, man, I don't really know much. I've just got to go here and see how everyone else is working, but it gave me a lot of confidence to know that our program, um, was very, very efficient, that even though I only had a small time with dogs, I was my knowledge base was definitely up there with those guys experience no okay especially with some of the master trainers and stuff there that were attending that um but you know i felt very capable and seeing the dogs you know gooch would have i think gooch would have outperformed every dog there sorry guys that are from that conference that are listening but dog shit buddy, i would have like loved okay. i would have loved to have him there you know <laughs> it opened my eyes to different training methods you know the dog world has a lot of judgment you know a lot of guys get set in their lane and they're so fucking stubborn and they don't want to move their minds are fucking closed and it limits their potential you know going over there i saw dogs which were Two, in my opinion, two odor focus. So we're now we're now in the realm, and same as our unit, where we were doing you know multi-purpose canines, where it was uh, you know apprehension and, and searching, we tracking, and also explosive detection. Um, we're lucky in Australia and Australian soft, we have engineer regiments attached to our units that have um, dedicated explosive odor detection canines. So oh, yeah. at the moment, 
we can still rest on them being way more capable than we are. So we are more attack focused, but the guys are definitely, I know now they've really worked on that capability and it's really come up leaps and bounds. But, you know, I would see dogs that were too, in my opinion, odor focused and not looking around first and using wind scent. They were looking at the ground and stuff. And I was quick to judge it, you know, and then talking to the handlers, you would talk about their experience in their realm, whether it's, it's police realm or the military realm. And, um, their dogs were molded by their experiences. If they were doing fighting in Fallujah, where they were doing door kicking and they were hit with explosives and IEDs all the time, guess what? Their dogs were doing more explosive odor detection than attack work. Where we're in Afghanistan, we were operating in rural areas, you know, green belts, big long green areas in between the, you know, in the creeks and the mountains to, to villages where our IED threat, unless it was a drug lab, was really, really low. So we fought like that. We wanted dogs that were able to push out in front of us hundreds of meters by themselves and look for people that were waiting for us to activate those ambushes, whether being, you know, engaging with the fighters or being shot at. So um, it was interesting. It sort of made me go, yeah, cool. I understand that now. You know, I understand why your dog does that. And I definitely can't judge it because it makes fucking sense. You know, your capability yeah. is molded by your experience, which is the way we not only doing dogs, but all our training, it's molded by our experience in Afghanistan. It's molded by our experience in Iraq and our counterterrorism experience is molded by that space. You know what we see. So you can't train like people are training in the U S or whatever. You're going to train how, how we need to train. Um, but so that, 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 uh, symposium was awesome. I made a lot of good friends, did a lot of drinking. Um, mm. um, you know, there was one time, and, and again on that, I um, we were doing some um, some water, um, putting the dogs off the boats into water and swimming to a uh, an island. And um, uh, so I thought it was an island, but it was a uh, it was part of a beachhead. And as the dog it was by itself, and it made it made, uh, 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 you know, it came up on the beach and it started searching the beach. This was an odor-focused dog, thank fuck, because there was a civilian just <laughs> over the crest of the hill on that. on that, And, and, and I shat myself because in my world, my dog is not looking down. He's getting to that, that beach and he's looking up and he's going straight for that person. So I'm puckered up thinking, oh, shit, you guys are about to get in real trouble. But luckily that was an odor-focused dog. It kept mm. its head down and the guy was able to recall that dog. But it was a good example of the different ways that you use dog and how one focus can compromise the other. Um, so that was some good, you know, um, I got to do some other training with some other international teams. And, you know, I saw some people that would call themselves master trainers and whatever else. And were still doing things like equipment focused scenarios, you know, letting, letting dogs take ownership of bite sleeves, um, you know, talking to decoys like they were part of the team in front of the dogs, doing all that sort of stuff. Like we're very, very strict on that shit. We don't let people wear our uniform and a bite sleeve and stuff. You know, they right. make sure the picture is very clear to the dog. When I see things like that and I see people call themselves master trainers, you know, I start to question that label, you know, for that person. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's a lot of, I think that's the military working dog program out of Lackland. And I, I might be wrong on this, but I see a lot of, a lot of guys in, in, um, military uniforms taking bites. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. yeah so we wanted to back up Ted and I were think we're going to ask you back. Yep. Talking about this, the way you worked in special operations. So we talked to, and it, and it is kind of different for each kind of unit. Like you're talking about, um, 
our big focus when I was out with the seal contract was a route clearance. You know, yep. they were landing on the Y patrol in, hit the target, but then guys we've had on that were in some of the tier one units, they're, they're landing and hitting probably the same That's thing it. you are. Yep. So yep. the dogs yep. direct, definitely a little bit more direct action. Um, yep. The other big difference in a lot of these units is some work where the dog's free flowing and every guy on the team can direct the dog or handle the dog. And some one guy, one dog, everybody else does everything. How'd you, without getting into yeah. too much specifics, how no, no, is like, your style? Like, so, so within my team itself, so when I'm talking about the other assaulters in the team that I'm working with, so we, I was embedded with my platoon. My dog got to know everyone in my platoon very well. You know, the smells, the way they move, dogs pick up on that just like we do. And um, I would tell those guys, so they're not handlers, I would tell them that I'm Gooch's dad, you're his uncle. You know, he's going to listen to the commands that I teach you, which is the search commands and direction commands. Mm -hmm. That's all you need to know call his name, give him that command. He'll run over to you. He's not going to engage you and you just send him through with our directional command and he'll do that. Don't get into a situation of trying to challenge him. You've got no reason to, you know, you've got no reason to pick him up, to fight with him, no reason to tell him no. He doesn't respect you like that, you know. He, he doesn't see you as he sees me. Now, with the other handlers, because there was situations where other handlers, we're all got one dog that we stick with, you know, and you might get another dog during your career, but for the most part, you've got one dog. But sometimes someone's dog is injured or whatever. They'll come to you, say, I've got to do this demonstration. I've got to do this training exercise. Do you mind if I borrow your dog? Because those guys have that level of training, they can manage our dogs, you know? Mm -hmm. So other guys, Gooch just wants to work. So you can get a guy to handle him as long as he's, got some authority and some balls about him. He's going to be able to handle Gooch. You know, Gooch is obviously going to have a bit of trouble learning his commands in his tonal uh, delivery and, and, you know, his voice, the dogs, are, you know, you guys know that's a very important aspect of, of dog training. Everything is, is those commands and how they're delivered. And he might hear those differently, but for the most part, these guys, you know, a different hand, I can swap between different dogs and they're going to have success with that dog. Ted. Um, where do you have any of the cop guys that do the SWAT stuff that try to work that way? The what, what I find over here is in Ohio is it's so much part time teams that there's just no way. I mean, the, well, uh, no. it's not on the entry element. No, and most and yeah, it's not. They're not working that dog at that level. I mean, they're so strapped for resources as it is here. That yeah, the dog is like a massive resource to a team, and the amount of training. I mean, as you know, this like the amount of training is is insane that goes into that, and these dudes are lucky to get the minimum amount of training as it is just to be for patrol stuff. So you know, yeah. normally most SWAT dogs in the United States or on the police side are limited to either like some of the high risk tracking stuff, which there should be more yeah. of that training or um, they're stuck on perimeter, like rarely, unless they're dedicated in like massive departments, like LAPD, for example, like, you know, Gooseby and those dudes, they're assigned to SWAT and they do a fantastic job. But I, I think um, for police, I think you can get some military handlers that, that judge police. And, and I never will, because if we're going to break down, you know, our career into a hundred minutes, of those 100 minutes, for 99 of those, I'm training. For 1%, I'm operational. If you're a police officer, you are operational for 99 minutes and you are uh, training for one, all right? And obviously, that is 
absolutely not ideal for a dog handler, but that's the cards they're dealt. That's the way it works. If you want to change that, you're now going to have to employ a shit ton more handlers, a shit ton more dogs, because while those guys are off training, other guys need to fill that gap on the street in those areas of responsibility. You're going to have more downtime. It's just not feasible. So I've never judged police and I understand that that problem, it is fucking difficult for them. It's I'm going to steal that analogy. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, in the United States, like, our military, with the exception of National Guard, is, like, forbidden from deploying in the United yeah. States. And, I mean, yeah. they, they, and that is a, like, they the, do not, yeah. they do not play fuck around. That goes all the way back to, like, <laughs> back yeah. with the Redcoats. Like that goes way back to the day. Oh, well, and mate, so mate, you know, we, things are different. Because, oh, yeah. sorry, keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah. So here, like, you know, we have the federal stuff. Like we've got, you know, we've got Vortac, which we've been trying to have a dude on from there forever. Um, we've got Vortac, we've got the FBI, SRT guys, we've got the marshals and they all have their own and they train with those specialized units. But, you know, by and large, like, they're like they may do some like assist and advise stuff but they're not deploying like on your counter terrorism team like yeah. if they deployed yeah. the fucking seals or delta within the yep. borders of the united states like i think people would lose their shit yeah like so people be like what <laughs> i mean they train like all the time like where eric was yeah. at, like up at muscatatuck like you know they train like obviously within the united states all the time but they would that i mean that does not happen here yeah. so well Mate, we've got we've got soldiers deployed currently that are helping police COVID bloody quarantine hospitals and stuff. Yeah. You know? So it's a it's a different environment over uh, here. But it's it is a resource thing as well, mate. You know, we right. have smaller teams, you know, we have a smaller specialist police um, capability, we have a smaller special forces capability. So that overlap, I mean, it's it's sort of uh, inevitable, you know. Um, they can't throw the same money and training at the specialist police units that they can at us in order for us to fill that gap for domestic counterterrorism. So it's just, it's different countries run completely different. There's pros oh, and yeah. cons of both, you know, they're very, very different. I mean, we're experiencing right now the difference in, in our two yeah. countries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. We're just not. Yeah. Gonna, yeah I'm not going to fucking say anything. Gonna, I'll that? just get pissed <laughs> off. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you I just live I mean, here and I just tell people, cause it happens I, a I, lot where yeah. they say, you know, well, here we do or wherever. Like, and I'm like, yeah. And, you know, it happens a lot with uh, people from unnecessarily Australia, from other countries that are, you know, sort of other than the United, than Australia. Yeah. And they're like, well, you guys are, you know, you guys police very differently there. I'm like, yeah, we do. Like, yeah. And we have a very different legal system than you people do. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a very very weak form of central government so you know, like it's it's really rare it's really strange for them to hear that the united states is like 50 individual countries almost yeah, with like is, a weak central government yeah. and believe me i live in a state where they love to tell the federal government to fuck off any chance they get and yeah. they'll have we have to be sued by the feds to get them to get to do shit here and yeah. like they're proud of that and i'm like i whether it's right or wrong is neither here or there but i'm like yeah, yeah. okay so yeah. It's a very weird thing. And they're like, why don't they just have the government tell them what to do? I'm like, that yeah, that's not how it works here. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> no, we don't do that shit here. Yeah, look, look, Australian culture, when if you want to talk about, just have mentioned that very quickly, and our culture is, I think, a bit too quick to sacrifice our freedom for security. You know, it's, it's a difference, I think, between our two nations. I've, I've spent a lot of time in the US. In fact, I really wanted to move there. And I still do one day. Um, I love it in the US because of that, that, uh, that, 
protection of freedom. You know, it definitely brings a, a bit of less security, um, but I guess it's, it's what you value, you know, and I, I do like that about the US. I think it's an absolutely beautiful country and um, I've always, only ever enjoyed myself over there. And uh, yeah, it's just two countries that are ran very differently and, mm. and there's pros and cons of both. You know, and talking sure. about, you know, like your police, you know, I hate, I hate it when people in Australia want to judge US police officers, you know, for being heavy handed yeah. and blah, blah, blah. We do, we do not have it anything like that in the US. You know, you guys, no. we have a, a healthcare and a welfare system that really stops us for having that, that true sort of poverty. We don't, I mean, we have poor people, don't get me wrong. And we have places that are, that are rough and everything, but we don't have that, that, poverty and i've seen it in the u.s that that leads to that desperation that has bred that gang culture in the streets you know and they're they're tooled up and they are tooled up massively you know and being a police officer that's working one of those areas and not knowing if that guy has a you know a, a firearm that's even better than yours in the car and how prepped he is to use it you know it is a fucking stressful these guys are at war you know mm -hmm. so a reaction being quicker and a hard reaction being quicker than our police, you yeah, know, fucking shit, you know, as it is with the, we're talking about capability molded by experience. Your police work is molded by your experience over there, you know, so I won't, I won't judge. Um, it's, it's a difficult situation there for a lot of police officers in the U S and being able to make that call between their own personal safety and the public safety and, and doing something that, you know, the public is going to crucify them for. Uh, we're kind of dealing with the inevitability of that now. We had the whole yeah. defund culture happen, and then yes, that happened. Yeah. And shockingly, <laughs> the cities where that happened, shit yeah. is burning down, falling apart. And yeah. people are like, "Oh!" And now, and you know, they're they're now asking elected officials, like, "What the like? What the fuck is going on?" And they're like, "It's yeah. what you asked for, bro." And like, yeah. everybody's like, oh, "This is not. It's not what we meant. Like, it's, it's, it's not. It's not. It's not what we wanted." And and forever. What I said from the beginning is they're like defund the police. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't spend more money on social programs, but why does that have to come from law enforcement? Like, why can't it come from the other fucking 900 other programs that are going on, like yeah. as an equal proportion? And everybody kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And fast forward, you know, 16 months and people were like, oh, we're tired of murders going up. We're tired of our <laughs> shit getting stolen. And I'm like, oh, well, shoot back. I don't know what you want me to tell you. Like, they're not coming. Nobody's coming to save you. Like, you live in Detroit. Sorry, Detroit. But, I mean, you live in Detroit or one of the large cities up in, in the northern part of the country. Minneapolis is a perfect example. That place, like, that went fucking weird. And, you know, I know canine handlers up there, and they do a great job. And they were getting fucking shit on for doing their job. And I get, like, I understand what's happening and I understand the context and all that other shit and everything's going on, but they're like, Oh, we don't need any cops. I'm like, you motherfucker, you wouldn't even go next door to tell your neighbor to turn the radio down. Yeah. And yeah. then you're like, Oh, we don't need the cops. I'm like, okay. And it's mm -hmm. those people are the same ones that are now yeah. that same group of the same people that are like, why are the government, why isn't the government enforcing COVID restrictions? I'm like you, you literally ask them to not do anything yeah. and now you right. want them to. And it's the same group of fucking people. And I'm like, I just pick a, pick a struggle, yeah. <laughs> like, pick one, pick a fucking people, struggle and deal with it. <laughs> like, people just like to make noise without really thinking about what that noise is, you know, and they social media has, has, has become this place where everyone thinks their opinions matter and they get, stuck up in a movement which makes them look good to their friends and blah 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 and they just push that out there not really having a stop and a think about the repercussions of what they're talking about you know and uh it's, it's an unfortunate situation and, and it's something that 
you know, I've, I really try and stay away from because it, yeah. it's, it really invokes an, an emotional reaction from me, um, mm-hmm. especially when, you, when you're talking about police <clears throat> and stuff and you're putting police in a situation where they're going to be in a situation where they're, hes- where they're hes- uh, hesitating, you know, a life or death situation, whether it's for them or a member of the public, and now they've got a hesitation in their head where they're not just positive identification, weapon, bang, I've done my job. It's holy shit, what's going to happen afterwards? You know, and that's a that's a really dangerous. My brother is a police officer. And when he got through, and I went to his march out, um, his his march out parade, and, and the, the dinner afterwards, and that's what I said to him. I said, mate, you know, um, if you're ever in that situation, just you make the call quickly, and you 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 deal with the repercussions afterwards, but you yeah. keep yourself alive. You know, um, it's that's that saying. What is it? I'd rather be what is it? Judged by twelve than carried by six, or whatever. Right. It is, yep. You know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so I, before I just, we take our Next yep. break, real quick. Let's shift back to Dustin's symposium. You seem like yeah. a guy who has a thirst for learning. So when you get back to Australia, yep. what is one or two things you picked from there that you said, I'm going to do this with Googe? That seems to work maybe differently or better. Yeah, I'm trying to think. You know, I was, I was, I was definitely, um, there was some water stuff. So a lot of water stuff they were doing. You know, I was... I was swimming gooch. Um, you know, we do we do massive infills, whether we're parachuting, whether we're helo casting, or whether we're sliding off the side of a boat and we're swimming into a, a beach by night to do a clearance. I'd probably put on the back burner gooch swimming. You know, some of these guys have come up with pretty ingenious ways to lower their no- noise profile um, um, doing the swimming. Uh, the swimming infill and everything like that, which I saw some of the techniques te- uh, techniques they were using and some of the training they'd put into it and uh, took that back. And it's something I worked with with Googe. You know, he, when I first got him, he couldn't even swim. So I had to teach him how to swim. It was my first time that I realized that dogs, not all dogs naturally swim. So um, yeah, I definitely oh, yeah. put more, more effort into that. Um, and there was just some movement within the team, some takeaways from that that, that, that we bring back to the unit. Um, a lot of the odor training. So that's a lot of the keys we took. And I won't go into the details of all that sort of stuff. But we were when we went over there, we were just starting with our odor, um, very basics of it. And we went over there, you know, uh, the SEALs, um, uh, even uh, uh, a lot of the police and everything were doing some awesome things with ODA. So we took a lot of the keys and a lot of the training techniques that they were using for um, explosive odor detection. We brought that back to Australia and we implemented it. Um, you know, yeah, so. That's awesome. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a, another break. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, Googe living the high life now, buddy. So uh, listen to the... Uh, Commercials support our sponsors, guys. We got great, great sponsors on there. Take a look at them, um, and we'll be right back. All right, guys, this episode has been brought to you by great sponsors of ours. Please don't skip through this. Take a listen to them. One of our oldest sponsors and great friends of ours are the people down at Highland Canine down in North Carolina. Um, I really like them. We have we see them at all the conferences. I know a lot of people have been to their school for dog trainers. They've been on the podcast. Highland Canine, they're a full service canine and pet dog training business where they can train you to be a trainer. They can get you a dog. They have handler classes. They have supervisor classes. They have trainers courses for just LE. They have them for anybody who wants to be in uh, in the dog business, be a dog trainer of any kind. Um, check them out. Their website is tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com, tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. 
if you are smart, you'll go down there in the winter. It is North Carolina. It is warm. You get to work dogs. It's a no-joke school, guys. You're not going down there for a month um, and, and rushing through it. They're actually trying to make you real deal dog trainers. Uh, TacticalPoliceK9Training.com. Next is a sponsor that's been with us for quite a while, uh, Dogtra. I love Dogtra stuff, and they continually keep bringing out new products. Uh, one of the things that I've been using a lot lately is the new Tone Box. If you're a pet trainer or if you train a lot of police officers, and I harp at my guys all the time about timing, and this thing literally kind of pairs to the, to the remote, and when you're using the remote, whether you're using Nick constant or Vibrate, it makes a noise. So you can get the timing down 100% consistent. And so I can demonstrate how to do an out with an e-caller immediately, quickly. And it is so effective that I can't believe that it took me forever to figure it out <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to get that. They've also got these new um, comfort feather like titanium things that go on the collars that uh, are fantastic for making sure we got contact. It actually has six points and this comes in two sizes and it's a titanium feather thing. They're awesome. They got comfort, comfort contact points for the bark collars, the YS 600. One of my favorite things. I have about 50 of them at the kennel and it is dead silent. And I put them on all the pet dogs and I can leave them on because they have the comfort contact points and they're fantastic. All this stuff you can get at dogtra.com. And if you use the discount code WDR, one zero you get 10 percent off a single item over 200 bucks so that covers the ball trainer that covers the 1900 ask hands free which is my personal favorite for all the big dogs uh it covers the two dog system uh the 202c which i use for the two dog pet guys and fantastic so doctor.com or go to at doctor official on all the socials that's facebook instagram all those places so hit them up doctor.com guys i don't even shop any other sites when i'm looking for everything for dogs our one-stop shop for anything pet dog training and police dog training hunt dog training anything you need you can find at rayallen.com they have been doing it forever we have a great relationship with them um again they're at all the conferences you can stop up and talk to them they have more stuff there than any place rayallen.com they are amazing we have a great a really, really good relationship with those guys. Um, like I said, I get on their website. I do not look anywhere else. I just get on Ray Allen. Why, why should I fill up my cart, pay it? Boom. Shipping. Here we go. Uh, everything's coming. RayAllen.com. And guess what? We do have a discount code for them. Working dog radio for 10% off. It's all one working dog radio and it's all caps. Check them out. RayAllen.com. I'm not too shaped to admit that I used our own discount code to buy stuff for the kennel. We have American Aluminum next. They're a new sponsor for uh, moving forward. Um, they have been around for quite a while. They manufacture a wide variety of products from the high quality cam lockers and toolboxes to a huge line of products designed to meet the ever-changing needs of law enforcement community. Back in 1992, due to the demand for safe, secure transport for a nearby law enforcement department's canine, they introduced the very first Easy Rider canine. They have continuously grown and expanded products, catering to the needs and wants of the valued customers and a high-profile clientele. Over the years, as the needs have changed, they have evolved and expanded their products to include inmate transport systems, canine training aids, canine inserts, contraband, containment, and animal control systems, just to name a couple of things. So you can find them at easyrideronline.com. That is Easy Echo Zulu Rider Online. Dot com. You can find them on the socials at American Aluminum Accessories, and then you can hit them up toll free 1-800-277-0869. You don't have to worry about writing all that down. We're going to put it in the show notes. So just scroll down to the bottom. 
write it down, click the link, takes you straight there onto your phone. Our first sponsor we ever had, he's been, he's our ride or die. He's been with us since the beginning is Arno over at ALM canine equipment. His stuff is so good. Ted, you know, gets suits. He, and listen, Ted's suit, he's had it for a long time. Arno's fixed it. He's uh, taken a million bites on it. It still holds up. The thing's amazing. I've got a suit from him. I love it. Use it all the time. Uh, but the main thing that I really love about Arno is his hidden sleeves are ridiculously amazing. They are the best. And his tugs. I usually buy tugs from Arno by the box load. He'll send me a whole bunch of them. I hand them out to the handlers, new handlers when they come in, experienced handlers. Uh, they last for a long time. They're amazing. The craft work is is great. Arno's doing all the, the sewing there. He's got pre-made suits. He can do custom-made suits, everything you need um, out there. And he's out there in sunny Las Vegas. Get on his website, check him out, almk9equipment.com, almk9equipment.com. Discount code WDRADIO, all caps, 10% off your first order. Check them out. All right, Working Dog Radio, we're back broadcasting the bite. Another great episode here. Another one of our uh, Australian handler guys with us, um, Canine Steve. So we'll fast forward. You're back. You're in there. Um, talk real quick about the injury and the retirement and then your retirement and the life that you guys are living now. Yeah, cool. No, this easy. Um, he uh, so he sustained a uh, an injury as a pup. Um, he got TPLO surgery, um, and uh, when he got a bit older, that caused some early onset arthritis, pretty bad within that joint. So uh, we realised through just a long process of him limping, resting, limping, resting, till we finally just on an inspection we found some bruising um, on his groin, and he tore his I think meniscus. Uh, is that what the muscle is? I forget. Yeah, and. Um, he tore that really badly to the point where it was about to snap and he'd done that really? because that that arthritis was he was protecting the leg with arthritis so at that point we got him healed up and this was just after we got him a set of titanium um canines as well which was he was the first dog that australian defense force had ever done and um so about a month after that, uh, sent him back to his specialist, did his original operation, got all the scans and said, hey, yeah, look, this dog, you could probably work him another year or two, but you're going to work him into the ground. Um, so with that, I went back to my hierarchy. I had a good reputation with them. Googe had a fantastic reputation. He made me look like a superstar. So um, I went to them, told them, and they were like, yeah, you know, let's get this dog retired. You know, 12 months, we'll get him home and uh, we will, we'll, we'll uh, have the best quality of life as possible with you. So in Australia, for us, you know, Googe was definitely the first dog we'd ever retired that was going home at an age where he was still at his peak. You know, he was five and a half years old. Mm. And um, luckily, Googe was one of those absolute unicorn of a dog's where he is absolutely not aggressive and you unless you tell him to just super smart calculated confident dog so the perfect dog for retirement um they go through a detraining phase which for him was basically just socialization so taking him to the beach and doing all this other stuff introducing to other people to children to other dogs doing all that getting him out of that mindset stopping any man focused training completely um, it's pretty much just obedience and odor um, from there. And um, he then had to go do RSPCA pet suitability testing, um, which for us, the dogs can't fail any component. So pets, they can fail components, but for working dogs, they can't. And the dogs have to pass this. Otherwise, the government will not sign off on them going home. Obviously, there's a risk 
a mitigation aspect. Yeah. Um, Australia is is their risk tolerance for anything is obviously really really low. You know, as I said, security for freedom. And um, they are not going to put a dog out on the streets uh, with a ex-handler. That can be a problem because the repercussions of that legally would be fucking massive. So the dog, there's no bullshit. They have to pass that dog passed the gooch passed it with flying colors. In fact, it was sort of hilarious for them to like watching them test. They don't let mm-hmm. you be in the room in case you are guiding the dog or the dog. They want to be trying to instill some anxiety, separation, anxiety, do all that. You know, they, they do a bunch of funny tests because they're trying not to get bitten. So they've got like kid dolls that they bring in, you know, and see if the dog reacts to a doll and they, they, feed the dog and they go through all different levels of different sort of food in value, you know, to what it would be to a dog. And they get this arm and they try and like take the bowl away from the dog to see if it's got resource guarding. They, they test for separation anxiety. They introduce it to other dogs to see if there's any aggression towards other dogs. So that starts with a, you know, a soft meeting through a chain link fence with a really low drive dog all the way up until a meeting with a super high drive dog one-on-one and they have to pass all that. So it's quite intensive and, and for good reason. Uh, I'm definitely in support of that process uh, because we don't want any issues, you know, and uh, he did all that, came home with me. I was still serving, but I was going through my own dark space at that point and um, uh, I went through, I put my hand up to get help with all that and basically that started the progression of the end of my career as well uh, where I went through a almost a detraining phase like Googe. I spent a lot of time to make sure that my landing outside of defense was as smooth as possible. Um, you know, I had, I had a lot of issues and that led to my divorce as well. I was married through all this, uh, unfortunately. And um you know, I had to take ownership of all that, which I did, and um, very, in, in very, uh, very intense as well. Did a lot of therapy and everything like that. And um, we're lucky; we do have those. Uh, uh, that support is available to us. You know, the guys really have to put their hand up for it because, I mean, otherwise, how do you know? But for my experience, you know, I know other guys have had different exits, but my unit was was so good to me and afforded me all the time and all the resources I needed to smoothly transition. So 2020, so I spent, sorry, time during that phase, I was just in the dog cell helping development. So dogs that were coming in from overseas, meeting them at quarantine down in Melbourne, because we got to look after them down there for 10 days because, you know, the staff there won't look after attack dogs. You know, dogs come back here doing all the, the fundamental training, the uh, imprinting, doing, um, you know, I saw, I was part of, I guess, the phase that saw that change from compulsion style training to more positive methods, you know, and, uh we bought in, Pat Stewart had something to this, bringing in Bart Ballon um, to mm-hmm. run silver and gold courses. So we took, we adopted the Nepopo system. Obviously the stuff of that really valuable, stuff of that more sport dog focus wasn't valuable for us, but we took the clicker training aspect and that shaping and luring behaviors at the start through positive reinforcement, getting the dog to know exactly what you want it to do. And then setting the left to right with uh, positive punishment and, and pushing them further, adding pressure with negative reinforcement and doing all that rather than just, throwing a task at a dog and fucking just doing it, doing it, doing it until they get it, being hard on them. You know, Gooch was probably the last dog that went through that style of training. Um, I I think he was a dog that training was suited for. Some dogs I think are suited for that style. You know, he responded well. He was a really good dog. I don't do that sort of training with him anymore. It's all clicker work when I'm doing new stuff with him, but he slowed down massively. He's not the same dog. And I have a ridiculously strong bond with him. So there's no longer this jostling for power which he showed me in the first probably six to nine months of our relationship Mm -hmm. you know where 
I, he didn't need me when I met him first. He didn't need me. I facilitated his training. He didn't want me to pat him. Yeah, he put up gate. with me. me yeah. Yeah. He put up with me. <laughs> he would, he would test me constantly, constantly testing me to see what he could get away with. Obviously if I didn't identify those things and meet that with a correction, he would escalate that, you know, and he turned around on me a few times coming off bites and stuff like that, that I caught the handler before me, the, the train, if he wasn't so lucky, I think Gooch put him in hospital twice. Um, but, I got put in hospital by another dog anyway. You know what happens. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I thought I nearly got to the end of my time in the kennels without getting done. I thought I was a Caesar Milan of bloody the working dog environment. And then one, no. one dog, one dog I took on because uh -uh. they sort of, he'd bitten everyone else. I thought I had a great relationship with this dog. Took it on one walk, end of the walk. He turned on me. And uh, yep. that, 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 that humbled me very quickly <laughs> mm. as it does, you know, a 40 kilo Malinois hanging off your arm is not a pleasant experience. I mean, you guys no. would have experienced that oh, yeah. multiple oh, times. Yeah. You know? They fucking hurt. Pain so, compliance is a real thing. You know, people say, I'll fight oh, yeah. the dog. I'll fight the dog. Pain yeah, compliance yeah. is a real thing. <laughs> How about it? Yeah. So Gooch is, is special. So he's special. He's obviously special to you. Yeah. Like mine, I put mine in his kennel cause he's an asshole, but um, so, so Australia is weird about getting dogs in there. Like it takes for fucking yes. ever to get dogs yes. in. Like you guys are in quarantine yes. for like seven years or something ridiculous. You said 10 <laughs> days, but it's longer than that. Six, six and, months overseas. Six yeah. Months I overseas, mean, 10, right? 10 days in the country. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Right. So we, yeah. um, you guys did something that we don't do here. So the reason, because uh, so in the United States, like when a dog gets brought over from wherever, um, they go off to work at a police department or some military unit and they're never heard from again, right? They yeah. they successfully go bite shitheads and find stuff. And then they sit on the couch and get fed by a handler's wife and they fucking die. And it's really sad, yep. but we stopped that bloodline. You guys didn't yes. do that, right? No, no, no. no. Yeah, so we identified this. Yeah, we identified this. You know, I think everyone, you guys would have experienced, there was a, there's a time there. I think it's come back to, to good times now, but good Malinois were impossible to find, you know, coming off the back of German shepherd popularity. It's not any Malin easier today. Yeah. Well, <laughs> everyone, everyone, you know, every special unit around the world wanted Malinois. So the best Malinois in Europe went to soft units all around the world and their bloodlines died out because no one thought, hold on, what about this? You know, we need to get, we need to milk them. We need to get, we need to continue these bloodlines. Our best dogs are going. So there's obviously that massive problem that was caused. You know, we're not the only people to identify this. It became very, very hard to get good dogs. So Googe was an absolute, I, I talk highly of him, but trust me, I've, I've seen dogs around the world. He was an absolute awesome dog. And uh, we identified this issue. So we, we ran a breeding program, a natural breeding program at work. And we also uh, rang a dog wanker out and he wanked off my dog multiple times and they, uh, they put his sperm on ice and we run a breeding program. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so this bloke, I'd never experienced this before. This bloke, they're like, Steve, you need to go meet the dog wanker and you need to, uh, the dog you need wanker. to bring him. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> You need to bring him in. And uh, so I bring him into the base through the gate and he's got this van, you know, a, a small sort of, you know, Mercedes van, whatever it is. And uh, he opens it up and the back half is this laboratory. He's got microscopes and equipment, digital screens and blah, blah, blah for testing the quality and the sperm and all that sort of stuff. He opens up the side door and out comes this show German shepherd female. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? So he's like, 
he puts this glove on, you know, gets his glove on. I'm like, what's, what's going on? He's like, can you just hold your dog? I'm like, yeah. They didn't really tell me what was going on. So I helped the dog. He's like, just hold him tight, right? He gets on his knees next to, next to me in front of my dog. And he brings his female assistant brings this dog just to within sniffing and licking distance of Googe. He just starts whacking off Googe. You know, Googe, he put this condom, this obviously that, that, that captures the seed. And he's just whacking. I don't even know what the fuck's going on. I'm like, mate. I'm just looking at him I'm like whatever you know and then he finishes and he's like bro what's your feet i'm like what do you mean and gooch is shooting everywhere he's like you know we, oh. don't, we don't we don't catch that that's the bad God. stuff that's oh. the bad stuff so oh. anyway anyway oh i um I, <laughs> he goes to his van he shows me the quality i oh, mean look at this he's got you know whatever many million per whatever and really healthy awesome you know his sperm were carrying on just like he does high drive you know we're going around everywhere and um he leaves. He's like, I'm coming back in the afternoon to do another one. I'm like, okay, cool. Go down. You know, I gather everyone into our common room. Like, boys, you know, you got to hear about <laughs> what happened. Because we get called dog wankers because of that myth that um, I think South Park made it, that, that people in the dog world whack off their dogs to make them loyal. So yeah. within the unit, within the unit, as a joke, they call us dog wankers and uh, handlers of dog wankers. But I was like, bro, I literally met an actual dog wanker. Told him the story, had a good laugh. Anyway, the bloke rocks up yeah. in the afternoon. And he's first thing, he comes out the van. He just like comes up to me. He's like, did you tell your mates about me? I'm like, what? He's like, I bet you, I bet you had a good laugh at my expense. Didn't you? I bet you're all laughing. And I'm like, what the hell? He was so self-conscious about his job. Must've been his I mean, first week or something. I mean, yeah, you jerked off my dog. I'm like, yeah, yeah I have. Yeah. It was fucking funny. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, Mate, we don't use it. <laughs> So to have him be that self-conscious about, I was just blown away. And I'm like, mate, you know, yeah, we had a laugh. I'm like, but the biggest discussion is we were sort of, we we're all figuring out what our price would be to do your job. And I was like, it would, it was totally dependent on how many sessions you have to do a day, you know, mm. but, but Hey, everyone has a price, don't they? I, fuck, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, you should have made him, you should have been like, Hey, you know, your job is extremely important to the defense of Australia. So, I mean, I, you're, you're like, it's your super integral role because we're not going to fucking do it. So, oh, like, I'm sorry. Mate. I mean, it was, we, it, was, it, was, it was an experience <laughs> for me. And I, I was, look, I was not expecting him to come up and pretty much predict exactly what we were doing. But it was a funny experience for me anyway. And, and the other side of that, so... Uh, we've got a breeding program um, up here in Queensland that the uh, Air Force runs and um, they produce dogs there. Uh, we don't really get them down at Two Commando in Sydney. We struck a deal with Gouges Sperm to get them. Some of them go over to Perth, but most of them really are just staying within our Air Force and our military police. And uh, the special forces units are getting our dogs from overseas or from different suppliers in Australia uh, wherever. But we also ran a breeding, um, a natural breeding with Googe inside our kennels. And um, at that point, we were only eight handlers, one lead handler and two training assistants, which are military police that are post military police handlers that are posted to our unit to help us. So there's what's that 11 of us in there. Um, we had like, you know, eight operational dogs and whatever many, you know, four whatever development dogs or maybe a couple at that point. And we, we did a breeding program with Googe thinking we were going to get four or five, six pups and we got 12. No. Yeah, 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 we got twelve, uh -huh. and yep. uh, shit, shit got real. Unfortunately, one, one was uh, stillborn, and another one, the runt, died. But we resussed it, um, and that had lots of complications. But it's still out there now. A lot of health issues, but it's out there now as a pet. Um, so there were basically ten. Uh, 11 puppies we're looking after and um, things got real really quickly. You know, the guys are already pressed between maintaining commando skills and trying to do. 
dog handling training as well. You know, this is balance that's really hard to achieve, which is a reason we don't get a lot of volunteers to do dogs. They really have to be dog lovers because you are going above and beyond what's required of you as a commando. You're working weekends, you're working holidays, you're coming before and staying after everybody. Plus you're looking after something that's totally dependent on you for survival. So I pretty much took on these pups for the first phase um, by myself. You know, we're doing, everyone was helping training, but I was doing a lot of the uh, kenneling stuff for them because I thought I was grand, grandfa grandfather Steve because they were, you know, Gucci's, <laughs> Gucci's kids. Mate, looking after Malinois that you can't discourage from biting and everything, once they get teeth and every time you see them, they are just pissing, shitting, biting you, barking at you. Like Sometimes at the same time. Yes. Mm -hmm. I used yeah. to come, I used to go see them and leave just with blood all down my ankles. You know, it was, it was full on. I was, I was going in um, twice a day over the weekends and I was doing seven days a week for like eight weeks or whatever, looking after these puppies, um, you know, after we sort of took them away from the mum or even when they're with the mum, just doing cleaning and everything like that. But it was an experience, you know, we, uh, we got to learn about puppy development and we got to learn why we'd never ever want to do it again. Um, you know, it's great. It's great if you've got the time to be able to get a dog from birth and turn it into the exact product you want it to. But, you know, dog training, just because you've got a good mum and, and a good dad doesn't mean you're producing good puppies, you know, so you can put your heart and soul into these dogs and they don't have what it takes. But obviously it's an ideal situation to, to, for a unit to raise it from the, the ground up, but it's not feasible. We don't have the time. Right. Um, you're much better off taking that chance, going to people that are really, really good at supplying special forces dog to, to give them uh, uh, some of those basic behaviors already being a good bite you know a good man focused dog redirecting some of that drives people that have already worked it through defense drive and everything and sort of got, got a bit out of that dog worked on its agitation and then we can mold it into specific taskings so it's uh it's definitely a hassle getting dogs into australia you know we go to the to, to the europe and we look at dogs and have to do the teeter test because the rabies is why we, we have no rabies in australia that's why it's really hard to get him into the country that's why it's a six-month protest for the blood tests and everything so you can go look at a dog it'll sit in quarantine in europe or whatever meaning it's either being trained by someone sometimes they're sport dog focused people which are imprinting behaviors that we don't want um or that dog might not get trained. And often we've had dogs come over here and they're just not the dog that we looked at overseas. You right, know, as soon as they've arrived. Yeah, as soon as they've yeah. arrived. And, and that, that, you know, that process can change a dog. It's a stressful process, that plane ride, everything. So we've had dogs rock up that we've paid a lot of money for. And straight away, straight out the box, you can just see this dog is, it's not going to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's developing, it's developed fear, uh, you know, whatever. It's got behaviors that you can see straight up. You know, when you be around dogs a lot, you can sort of tell from, from young age if they have potential or if there's some sort of issue that's going to stop them. And this happened occasionally where straight away we've had dogs arrive and they've gone out as pets. Um, you know, and it's unfortunate, but that's the game we play. We have a huge, so huge, we have a high failure rate, you know, um, because of time restraints, I think is a big part of it. You know, we get dogs, the selection process is hard. That, that, that transition coming to Australia is hard on them. Our training process is quick. You know, we, we do do the, the positive, more positive focus training, but at some point, just by time, you have to apply pressure to these dogs, you know, and, and if they are, they can't deal with that pressure, then unfortunately we have to fail them and they go out to agencies within Australia that don't have such a high demand of the dogs, you know, going out to military police, air force or police. If they don't have it at all, they go out as pets.
You know, there's only that the time thing is a big thing with special forces units. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Gooch's life is what yeah. now? Okay, so so Gooch in retirement. So we got stuck in Sydney because of COVID. We got locked out. I tried to move up here. Um, I was locked out in Sydney for sort of 12 months. Finally got up here where I am in Queensland. Uh, I've moved here onto the Gold Coast where um, I'm across the road from one of the best beaches in Australia. So Gooch spends his time on the beach training, impressing people with his impeccable uh, uh, obedience routine. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but he, you know, does oh, a yeah. left and right and middle and everything. I do the, he does a salute. Um, we do an awesome one which people love, which is shooting him, um, which he's really, really good at. <laughs> you know, I recall him and shoot him and he dies. Um, you know, he gets pats from everybody. Um, he, he's, he's loved, you know, people, people love to see him and I love talking about him. You know, people come up to me all the time to ask me about dogs and I love telling them what he's done and who he is. I'm very proud of it. I'm also very willing to open people's eyes, you know, in Australia, you know, we, you've had guests on here told you that, you know, e-collars, prong collars, even training dogs to bite. It's not really done over here. You know, people have frown, frown upon it. People will see my use of a prong and send me messages and tell me how cruel I am when this dog's living the best life in the fucking mm-hmm. world, you know, but, but they have just uneducated opinions in Australia. They definitely, a lot of people lean towards that, you know, they don't even want to train a dog. You know, they're happy just to have some stressed out, super anxious, fearful dog. Um, but I can't have a, a, a super relaxed, calm, you know, loved dog. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it makes no sense to me, but I love trying to change that perception in a one-on-one conversation. I don't try and change it online because you just smash your head against a brick wall. I just mm-hmm. often put, I block people that are going to bring that. If, if, if I send them a reply or I, and, and their reply to that reply is one of absolute no understanding, I'll just block it. I don't want to invest that, that energy into trying to change the mind of someone who, whose mind can't be changed. You know, If you can look at Guja's and my relationship and see something negative, your problem's in the mirror. You know, It's not with me. Um, so whatever, but he, uh, you know, he, he spends his days on the beach. We still do a lot of training, um, a lot of obedience. Um, he's, you know, he's eight years old now. He's very much still has an active mind that needs to be stimulated. You know, he's never out of my sight. I do not let him, you know, be in my yard by himself unsupervised purely for the fact that being a special forces soldier, you know, I weigh up my worst case scenario. My worst case scenario is Gooch escaping, Rundering the streets, going into someone's home that's a dog hater. That person beats on Googe. Googe beats back. You know, Googe mm-hmm. attacks him. They're the short-term outcome, fucking hilarious. Long-term outcome, all that guy says, this dog attacked me unprovoked. Even though Googe, even if, if, if he doesn't say that, the fact that Googe is outside, off-leash by himself, I've already lost. So the repercussions for that for Googe, for me, for my relationship with defense and, and two commando for the retirement program could be massive. So I'm very, very risk averse with this dog. I, um, even though he's, he's an absolute sweetheart, you know, he still is what he is and I don't take that for granted. Um, but I absolutely love him. You know, my bond with him is, uh, is, is really, really strong, you know, to the point where I can have a bad sleep and, and Gooch will literally wake me up. Um, he, he lays with me. Um, puts his sort of his arm on, on my uh, chest and just waits me to go back to sleep and off he goes back to wherever he was, you know. It's, a, it's almost a, uh, um, an emotional support animal relationship mm. these days. You know, <laughs> I, think, I think I probably get a lot more out of him than he gets out of me. So uh, I love having him, you know. He's, he's a hit with the ladies as well, which, uh, you know, as a single bloke, that's, 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 that's a good position to be in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So tell people about your where you can be found on Instagram and yep. your TikTok. Awesome. Oh, no, don't let's not worry about TikTok, all right? That doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> I mean, I'm not dancing with dogs, all right? We're not, no. we're not doing that. Um, but um, so on Instagram, I am uh, K9 Steve. So it's a letter K, number nine underscore Steve. Um, you know, what I'm doing now is I'm getting into pet dog training um, with my friend, Will, who owns Master of Puppies here on the Gold Coast. Um, we're also setting up a, uh, a, um, a dog sort of training, um, boarding and kenneling facility uh, with a farm that he just bought, which has a huge, huge old vet slash stable that we're converting. So I'm getting my hands yeah. dirty with uh, pet dogs. And that's a learning experience in itself, you know, doing behavior modification, you know, just with a lead and voice rather than teaching a dog how to do a task with, you know, positive reinforcement, you know, negative reinforcement and all that. It's a different world. Um, just trying to, trying to, you know, create stable pets rather than a, a incentive focused dog. Mm-hmm. What about you, Ted? Where can you find you at? Uh, Ted underscore summers. Um, Torchlight canine letter K number nine and Torchlight pets is the pet side. Um, and then um, HRD police canine. And then obviously the podcast has its own working underscore dog underscore radio. Um, and you're where? Uh, Van S canine on Instagram. Van S canine Academy on Facebook. And then uh, Ridgeside canine Ohio on Facebook is mostly where the uh, pet stuff is. Um, but, uh, and then we have Patreon working dog radio on Patreon. Yeah. So Steve, man, it's been great having you on. We love yeah, it. Dude. You need to do more podcasts. I know you said this is your first one, but yeah. yeah. After <laughs> this, you're going to get requests from some other. Uh, thanks, fellas. Again, again, yeah. thanks so much for ha- having me. I hope uh, you guys got some value out. I hope your listeners oh, do yeah. as well. And uh, oh, yeah. any questions, um, you know, people know where to find me, shoot me a message, and I'll do my best to get back to them. So thank you so much, fellas. All right, man. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, and we will see you guys you on the next one. Yeah. I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young now. Too Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.